Welcome to the 63rd episode of the ABC Pod, the adult book club where we drink and we read things. This episode features The Thousand Autumns of Jakob de Zote by David Mitchell. Discussion of the book starts at the 15th minute. Spoilers are between the one hour and two hour marks. Like the book, we spend a lot of time pre-spoilers setting up the background for our characters and setting. In spoilers, we discuss the fictional part of this historical fiction, as well as what we thought of the writing and some of the tangents we were taken on. We finish with our usual segments, another surprise book for next episode, and maybe a holiday bonus on the horizon. So with that, let's hear it. Well, Tasha and Russell, they both love reading books. Tasha and Russell, they both love reading books. Well, what do you do when you share such love? Well, you start a club, you start a club, an adult book club, an adult book club, and a podcast. Welcome to the 63rd episode of the ABC Pod, the Adult Book Club with Taja and Russell. I am Russell. She is Taja. Hello. Hello and welcome back everybody to the podcast where we drink and we read things. And on this episode, we read The Thousand Autumns of Jacob DeZoet by David Mitchell. But before we get to that and my terrible pronunciation of everything, including Jacob DeZoet, Ah, it has been two weeks, Taja. What have you been up to getting ready for the holiday season? Oh my gosh, I am officially on Christmas break from work. I don't have to work all next week and I am excited. So yeah, we've got Christmas coming up. We're going to do some fancy dinner with my parents on Christmas Day. And then the week after Christmas, we're going to Jersey to celebrate with Barry's family and the many, 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 many nieces and nephews. Otherwise, uh, oh, upcoming this week as well. I'm getting fast internet installed. Look out. Getting fiber. It's going to be so exciting. I have been a crochet machine and I've made many, many much things. A lot of hats for gifts and then these little snowmen for gifts, which I'm particularly excited about because they came out real good. And then I am only eight books away, maybe seven now, from my Goodreads goal. And I'm going to try to bang it out. I downloaded a whole bunch of audiobooks that are really short. And I listen <laughs> at like speed. So in typical Taja fashion, I'm cheating. And I will be listening to those quite quick. So that's my plan because I've been listening a lot while I crochet. So I think I can bang out possibly seven more books before the end of the year. That is, that is my goal. Nice. Ho- hopefully um, the books we're doing for super secret projects count towards Goodreads total because I think you'll be able to crank that one out pretty quick too. I think so too. Yeah, that's part of that's that's on the docket for part of my <laughs> if, fulfillment. If it, on, if it is on Goodreads. I don't know if these ones I mean, like I don't even mine's out there. I don't even know what it's called. Um, <laughs> yeah, I feel like it should be. And like, can you just put it on Goodreads? Right. Does it have to be? I don't it know. Anyway, fun. investigation still required but that is my goal i think i can do it maybe it's a lot i have a thing about meeting my goals like how i cheat with my watch closing all my rings so i wouldn't call it cheating it's not like i'm not listening to the books not like i turn them on and then i fall asleep like i'm actually listening to them you know what i mean like i'm not that's not really cheating just play them in your in your sleep and then it's like i dream yeah i dream the image no (laughs) <laughs> I'm not doing that. So I feel like the way that I am doing it is just gaming the system. That's like I'm still a, achieving the goal. Gosh, it's a book a day. That's so much. 
okay, but when I listen to them, because I listen to them on a different speed, like I'm listening to Fight Club right now. It's a five hour book, but my speed is only a three hours. So that's just like a few hats of crochet time. <laughs> it's fine. I can do it. I chose really short books. I listened to one on my ride home. And then one I got home on Thursday or Wednesday, sometime recently. Welcome to the part of the show called Taja Math, where <laughs> this is how she how to, math. Win, how to win her Goodreads goals. Yeah, uh, I will win my Goodreads goals. Nice. Meanwhile, Nern, shout out to Nern. She surpassed her Goodreads goal. Smoked I don't it. even know what it was. It was like 60 something. And she read like 95 books. Jesus. Yeah. Anyway, I'm not, I am not like known. (laughs) That is impressive. Uh, I'm at 63 with the end, with uh, the end of Jacob DeSoe. So I I want to get to 65. So I I should be okay. That is my goal too. Nice. I think another thing, I I don't know the exact number. We'll cover it on super secret, maybe year end roundup. Uh, I think we did like 24 out of a possible 26 podcast, maybe 25. And that, that's the more impressive number. Like we didn't really miss podcasts this year. Yeah. Yeah. that that's that's the the thing we should be looking at most. Uh, right, good reads, schmood reads. Yeah, forget good reads. For me, the last two weeks are highlighted by this week. We are dog sitting for my mother in law and watching her hundred pound Bernadoodle named Harley, Muppet. who I call him Muppet because that's what he looks like and that's how he acts. He's like close to two years old. He is a child in every sense of the word, but he has so many ailments already his like bones didn't grow right in his legs so he's not allowed to horseplay but he thinks he can horseplay so it's a lot of like laying down horseplaying so you're not stressing his legs but it's a lot of him kicking you in the face and even though she swears he doesn't sleep in the bed he sleeps in the bed and tries to push you out of it and it's just been a lot it's another affirmation that we are not or i'm definitely not a dog person like i like other people's dogs i think we've talked about this on the show but like a lot of people like how they treat babies where it's like, I like other people's baby. Cause then I can hand it back. I'm like that with dogs. I will love your dog. And then I'll be done with it. And Deb, if you're listening, I am done with your dog. Please come back and get him. <laughs> I am the opposite. I mean, like Muppet sounds like he's a handful, but I will be like, I will steal your dog. Yeah. He would try to play with Bryce so much. He's like very much. I want to play with everything. And he just. Bryce would so not be into that. Bryce would. <laughs> Yell at him. Bryce would yell at him for sure. That's why one of Amanda's sisters isn't watching him because he tries to play with her like 14 year old dog and that their dog is like, no, oh, like, I don't yeah. want to do it. He's like, come on, like, come so on. Like, yeah, no, Bryce has zero patience for that. There was, I think it was like during 2020, snowy weather, we gone to the park for a walk and there was this puppy that Bryce was like, so from a distance was all excited to see him like rolled up all like, oh, cool, check out this dog. And the dog was very much a puppy and very much wanted to be her friend. And she was like, never mind. Yeah. I do not want this. I regret my choices immediately. Yeah, immediately. <laughs> Aside from that, which again is ongoing, so excited. Uh, last weekend, I went to a beer release for Sully. He works for a uh, fire department and they do as part of a charity, they uh, brew their own beer with a local brewery. That's and cool. then they have uh, the beer release and they got some uh, local companies to donate different things and they do a raffle and they raised thousands of dollars for their mm-hmm. fire department and all that. So that was really good. The beer uh, was a beer. It was like nine point something percent. Uh, oh goodness! And I was driving. They could only serve it in like eight 
or towns, like fancy goblets. Yeah. Um, so I had one and that was enough. <laughs> but was it good? I wouldn't be my first choice. Let me put it that okay. way. But it was like a scotch ale that was oh. uh, aged in something else. And that's Some just fancy not, barrels. Yeah, it's, it's not my go to beer. Like I, yeah. I, I like a, a nice stout uh, at this point in my life. And uh, I feel like those aren't what they're cranking out. But it, he was he was in charge of running it or one of two people in charge of running it. So he was walking around trying to sell these raffle tickets for their charity thing. And like each gift had uh, its own you know, box or whatever. It was all done online. Yeah. And so one of them was a $50 tattoo gift certificate to a local thing. And they had a 50, 100 and $200 one, but nobody had bid on the 50 bid when on. he was walking around. So I was like, well, I'll throw in 20 bucks to the 50. And that's, I want a $50 gift certificate to a local tattoo parlor. So we were talking about it. We ended up drinking more that night. Uh, shockingly and uh, we were talking about it and there was four of us there so we really only have to get it past Jay who will be the hardest customer we're going to do a burger competition at Alden's house in the spring and the loser has to use that $50 gift certificate to get a burger tattoo on their body I love this I love this plan so very excited to see when that happens probably sometime in May or June and then we'll figure it out from there but Sully especially loves doing bets but not for money like he likes to figure out different things you have to do because it it, it does it's add like a truth bit or dare more. bets. Yeah, pretty much. Uh, <laughs> it, it just adds to it. It makes it more fun than just being, oh, you owe me 20 bucks. So <laughs> we'll see how this invests. Owe me a burger tattoo. Yeah, nice burger tattoo. I mean, you can get it anywhere. You could hide it. And for 50 bucks, it's yeah. going to be like a really small, basically. A uh, yeah. I mean, like that could actually be kind of cool. <laughs> and maybe we'll double it, you know, throw 50 bucks in and make it a hundred dollar better looking burger tattoo. Fancy we'll see. Burger. You get a few sesame seeds on the bun. <laughs> 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 and then aside from that that so i was hung over because we ended up doing like a advent calendar type beer thing oh interesting. Wanted to do a bunch of different holiday beers and uh, instead of just picking or unwrapping randomly we rolled dice for it each can was numbered and whatever you got you got and there were so many dark beers because christmas beer is all like it's that hardier cold yeah. weather, uh, yeah. flavors there's like peppermint and peanut butter and all the How is the, stuff. I feel like the peanut butter one could be good. Did you butter, have it was, do you know Teddy's peanut, peanut butter? Teddy's peanut yeah, you butter. Yeah, I think you brought one here once because that, uh, that sounds very familiar. So that it was actually a pretty good peanut butter, but it's one of those things where like you have a sip and you're like, oh, that's pretty good. And, and then you, you have done. 16 yeah, ounces like and you're tasting, like, Ugh. a tasting uh, beer, not a sipping beer. Yeah. So I was I was having a great hangover and I got to leave early the next morning to go to my first of many Christmases with Amanda's family. So my brother-in-law the whole time was oh, like, hey, ready? ready for a drink? But yeah. So we separate them. So we have one on the 17th. We have one on Christmas, which is like a game night Christmas. And then we're doing another one like the second week of January. So I have wow. two and a half. I've been complaining about this. I think I complained about it on the last episode. I have two and a half Christmases. And then we have Christmas Fest, which I'm looking forward to. So I won't complain about that. I don't count that That's as one be- of these. Yeah. Uh, so it's just, I and I'm a Grinch, as I said before. So I'm, I'm really mm-hmm. looking forward to getting past this weekend. So Christmas can be over. But would it be better if all of them were like, lumped into like a few days as opposed to like over a couple of weeks that's tough because it used to always be like her dad's christmas was always the sunday christmas fest yeah so there's like a lot of times we would miss like sunday roast or we have to rush the uh yankee swap or whatever so it is nice having them spread out so at least there's that's true that's suck where it's like january and it's like oh we have another christmas i'm like again 
Yeah. I, I'm going to do something else with my weekends here. Right. And then the last thing I wanted to touch on, and I don't know if you guys got hit with it. I, I assume you did because everybody did. But on Sunday, Monday, whatever it was, we got two to three inches of rain mm-hmm. here. And yeah, I, uh, I, took, I took the Muppet out uh, that morning and there were different parts of the rink that were pushing out. The boards were pushing out oh, like, no. it's like a 90 degree angle. These were like 75 to 70 degree angles as the water was mm-hmm. becoming too much because it's 60 degrees and three inches of rain in December, but climate change isn't a thing, folks. Sorry, I'll get off my pedestal. Uh, mm-hmm. This is the first year I've ever had to put the pump in to the rink before it froze to pump water out. So I had to yeah, run the pump. I had to run the pump for two days, not consistently, but I did it for like, I, I said I was going to run it until it stopped raining on Sunday or Monday, whatever it was. And then I did it the next day too, just to get more water out of it. So I'm getting yeah, really tired have- of not being able to skate. I'm getting really tired of like the the 10 day forecast line to me where it's like, Oh, it's going to be cold enough to freeze. And then four days later, it's 60 degrees and raining. And yeah. um, is it cold by you now? Cause it is really freaking cold today here. It is really it's very cold. sunny, which is great, but it is like, I woke up and it was 13 degrees. So. Yeah. It is really cold today. We haven't got above freezing the last two days. We won't get above freezing tomorrow. I tried to step on the rink today and it couldn't handle my weight yet. So oh, it's still take, because you got to think like it was to- water two days ago. So yeah. it's yeah. It, in the shallow end. It's about two to three inches deep at this point. So it still will take a while to, to freeze. To freeze. And we're supposed to have like four days of 45 degree weather next week. So we're hoping to get on it before New Year's. I don't think we'll get on it. I don't know when we'll get on it, but you don't need to hear me bitch and complain about that. So we'll just move on. <laughs> And we'll talk about following us on Instagram and Twitter. We totally didn't post anything other than our initial reel this week. You're welcome. But we are at Adult Book Club 21 on both those platforms. It is Adult Book Club, all one word, and then the number 21. You can find us there. We're totally going to do better at it. I say that every episode, and we don't. But we now... You and I just... You and I both just posted something today, so... To our stories? Did you post a story too? Nice. Sure did. Nice. Yeah, so it's just stuff that doesn't stick around. We don't bother you guys. Also, Twitter is just a dumpster fire. So I haven't been there in a while. Yeah, I I use it for news, sporting news. And I like some stuff that Goodreads does. So people maybe will look at our podcast. Mm -hmm, But again, we digress, kind of similar to the book. And we move back now to the book, which is once again, The Thousand Autumns of Jakob Zot. Uh, according to how you're supposed to say it, by David Mitchell. I am definitely going to call him Jacob throughout this. Maybe I'll get a few Jacobs in there. We'll see. Jacob. So Thousand Autumns of Jacob de Zote is the fifth of nine novels written by David Mitchell. It was originally released in 2010 and was Mitchell's first foray into historical fiction. He has also written a considerable number of short stories. He's written two operas, a novella, multiple essays, and contributed to the writing of season two of the Netflix show Sense8. He is best known for his novel Cloud Atlas, which was released in 2004 and had a film adaptation released in 2012. That was done by the Wachowskis, or I don't know how to say their name, the people that did The Matrix. They directed and wrote it, so Cloud Atlas was kind of like his way in with them, and then they had the Sense8 show on Netflix, so that's why he got involved in that. And then he also helped write with them the newest Matrix, whatever that one was, uh, that came out a few years ago. So he's done a lot with the Wachowskis, I want to say. 
definitely nailing that. Hey, this is your episodic reminder that we are terrible with pronunciations and it is fitting for this episode because this will be a bad one. Uh, I'm like full of Dutch and Japanese names, neither languages of which we speak. Yes, exactly. Neither of which languages we are very good at at all. So we apologize in advance to any of our Dutch or Japanese listeners, um, and to our listeners in general for what's about to happen. But please feel free to laugh at us. Yes, we are going to, we are taking this book seriously. And if you weren't here for last episode, this was a surprise book for us. It was a surprise book for me. It was something that I saw on Instagram and somebody uh, was asked, you know, if you could read one book again for the first time, what book would it be? And it, obviously it's set up, but they were in a, a, li- uh, a library. They're in, they're in a library that sells books. It's called the bookstore. <laughs> AKA a bookstore. They're at a bookstore and they immediately went and grabbed this book. And not, I didn't look into it at all, but I knew of David Mitchell from Cloud Atlas. And my thought was A Thousand Autumns. Okay, it's going to be one of those spacing out generation story yeah. of Jakob de Zot. But instead, A Thousand Autumns is a phrase or a term that was used for Japan. It was the land of a thousand autumns, which is kind of where that comes in. And it tells us that at one point in the book. So way off, jumped into a historical fiction without even knowing it, but we're going to get into it. So uh, before we do, Tasha, if you want to read the jacket, we will see how this goes. Okay. The year is 1799. The place Dejima in Nagasaki Harbor, the Japanese empire's single port and sole window onto the world, (laughs) designed to keep the West at bay. To this place of devious merchants, deceitful interpreters, and costly courtesans comes Jakob de Zot, a devout young clerk who has five years in the East to earn a fortune of sufficient size to win the hand of his wealthy fiancé back in Holland. But Jacob's original intentions are eclipsed after a chance encounter with Orito Abagawa, the disfigured midwife to the city's powerful magistrate. The borders between propriety, profit, and pleasure blur until Jacob finds his vision clouded, one rash promise made and then fatefully broken, the consequences of which will extend beyond Jacob's worst imaginings. Ooh. Nice. So like some of his other works, this book features an ensemble cast, but we do have two main voices that I want to focus on to start, and that is Rito Abigawa and Jacob de Zod. So what stood out to you about these characters? Let's start with Arito, since she is, we encounter her first in the book, kind of cast in order of appearance. I thought she was really smart and like a really good person. The whole like strong female lead vibe, of course, obviously a very capable midwife and just her, what's the word I want? Ability isn't quite right, but she's just really good at what she does. And that was awesome. And I just appreciated the whole learned female especially in this time period how that's a bit of a rarity and yeah I mean the introduction to her was a bit odd um (laughs) graphic literally there was a graphic in the book which was a bit shocking uh five pages in and you see like a breached born child that's not quite right anyway it was aggressive but yeah she she was just the strong female lead which I love so yeah. yeah, it was interesting. There was a lot that stood out about Arito that was great. And you talk about just fighting against everything or when everything is fighting against you and you still persevering to be the best you can to put mm-hmm. yourself in this situation to succeed, not just as a woman, 
a woman in the past, but a woman in Japan in the past where it's even yeah. more regulated and more difficult than compared Less to other parts of the world. And... Less opportunities, but really there's limited opportunities even in the best parts of the world in the 1800s for sure, yeah. or late 1700s. So I, I did appreciate her just because she felt like a representation of a lot of women at the time saying, mm -hmm. I can be more. Like, mm -hmm. just because you think all we're good for is, you know, our wombs and we're nothing else. We have no brains, all that stuff. Like, I'm showing you that we can be more. And she had to struggle and fight for every little scrap of dignity, honor, opportunity, all that stuff. Access to education. Yeah. yeah. Everything she did. And she did come from a, a good standing family, which helped her. Yeah. Uh, that definitely was her her kickoff point, but she still had to do a lot on her own in order to move past what that initial opportunity was. So I like seeing her and and knowing that she was never going to take the easy way out. And we see that especially with her and Jakob's relationship mm -hmm. or friendship or courtmanship, whatever you want to call it, where things could have been a lot different for her had she just chosen the easy way. But that wasn't what she wanted. That wasn't how she was. So I did, there was a lot about Arito that I liked. And as the book moved on, I think she showed her true colors in a really incredible way uh, and, yeah. and put her, put others over self constantly, which was impressive in, in what she faced. As you were saying, it was interesting. I was just reading um, The Poet, which is a Michael Connelly book from the 1900s, the 1990s. And in well it- it was a re-release of the book or whatever, a recopy, whatever. And it had a forward from Stephen King. And he talks mm. about how he collects uh, the first line of books and how it stands mm -hmm. out to him. And he just has a notebook that he keeps as he reads. And he's like, boom. And like, that is something I remember Schwab saying it too, where she really, you want to make an impact with that. And like uh, Darker Shades of Magic, Kel has yeah. a quote. That's the first line. You're like, what the fuck is this all about? So I don't remember the first line of this book, but my point with this is it's not just about that first line. It's also about those first 10 to 15, however many pages. And without knowing what we we're getting into, as we're getting into it and you're saying we have this very strange birth story where like I will give Mitchell a lot of credit having not read any of his other works, his knowledge of our anatomy and how yes. our bodies work. And yes. he talks about it in his afterwards about how he spent so much time uh, making sure like the science or whatever the medicine of the time was illustrated here, Probably, yeah. literally and figuratively. Uh, huh. it, was, it was very well done. It was graphic at different times where I was just like, okay, this is a little much. And again, as you were saying on page five, where we get the imagery of the baby and how it's how it is coming out of the womb improperly. And Orito is trying to save it because it's the magistrate's child. It was just, I legitimately was like, what did I sign Taja up for? Because no, seriously, I was like, I wonder if Russell had any idea. He did not. He did not. I Never. Very, I got to it. And... Terrible mistake. <laughs> <laughs> well, I was reading and I was like, so like you said, the care he took with portraying the medicine properly and like his descriptions were very vivid. Like I was visualizing that pretty yeah. much with no issue and then I turned the page and was like oh my here Barry this is what's going on right now and he was like sorry what and that was something throughout the book uh just to take a, a tangent here I found it interesting the things they decided to illustrate 
some i found really helpful and some i was like why is that the one the one that stands out to me like later on the map if you will of mount shiriyama that made sense well and i liked the imagery of dejima as well i thought that was helpful that was helpful but then like the skeleton one where it's just a skeleton kneeling i was like i don't understand why we needed i could have like the description was fine the drawing of the fan and the drawings later like those were those were helpful i like that too because it gave us a little bit more of Jakob, as you could kind of yeah exactly and also arito like that was the only yeah, way no, to draw arito we didn't touch on that so she has a, a disfigurement with her face where she has a burn mark on one side of her face that she tries to keep concealed with a head kerchief or something which uh, Jakob even says like he makes the mistake of staring too long at when he first meets her and kind of fumbles their introduction to each other it felt like she both accepted it but still tried to hide it and i wonder if that's a little bit more with the times where it's like i don't know if she actually cared but it was i think it was how other people thought about it it was kind of what other people thought where she kept it covered for other people not necessarily their comfort yeah embarrassed or upset about her i'm sure she was upset about being burned in the face but i just mean like i don't (laughs) think on a daily basis she thought of it other than I need to keep this covered for other people kind of yeah for their constitution or whatever like to make them feel better i'll cover my burn right well and i'm sure she doesn't like getting the the stares like she did from Jakob, especially going into dejima and seeing those kind of transient people that that aren't used to her who her family is and touching on him speaking of him Jakob de zot is our other the dutch Clerk, thank you. I'm like a princess. That's not right. Clerk finds himself in Dejima trying to earn wealth for marriage later on. What did you think of Jakob as we got to meet him in this first part of the book? I mean, I thought he was a really good protagonist. You know, one of those people that's got like a pretty strong moral compass, but he's also a little bit awkward. A little bit. <laughs> um, a little bit awkward. He's like real smart. I mean, I thought that they were both really smart and really good people, but he was really is really good at his job too good at his job and yeah I think just like one of those very the strong moral compass is kind of what I keep coming back to like he he would be some like a very stereotypical without being painful to read protagonist (laughs) yeah he uh my first comment on him was he is as naive as carrot from guards guards almost Mm. (laughs) Carrot was uh didn't understand metaphors and all that. He was very naive and meant comically so. But the fact that Jakob didn't kind of see what was going on around him, and he spends this first the first trading season, you know, whatever that is, a few months. I I took it as like yeah, eight to twelve like weeks, that. maybe maybe yeah. less. He spends that time going through the old books because. As they come to Dejima, they are coming to arrest basically the chief in charge of Dejima because of the rampant fraud that's running here. And everyone here has their own little schemes and games and side hustles that they have. And that's fine as long as it's not taking away from the overall books of the Dutch trading company, which a lot of it is, especially the stuff the chief is doing. So Jacob has to put the books right. And as he's doing that, he is gaining enemies of literally everyone. Mm -hmm. And then he even touches on how Borsten Borsch or whatever his boss's name was. Borsten Borsch, yeah. He kind of stopped using this investigation as a we and started saying it as a you, your investigation, the things you are finding and all that. And Jakob is still like, do, 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 going along. Here's my report. This is going to win me so much, like, high praise from the company. Is it Jakob? I'll write this. I'll take down this letter that, like, absolutely is 
just going to be me doing this thing later. Yeah. His naivete. And I think, I think it's naivete. Like he's, he's not a dumb person, but I think he thinks or expects other people in the world to be as moral as him if they're in positions like Vorstenbosch, which is stupid of him to think because that's generally, yeah, power is corruptive. So yeah, I know. Shocking. Yeah, his naivete really does bite him, bite him in the butt. And we'll get more into that um, right before spoilers, because that's kind of the end of our first section here. So uh, before we do, I want to talk about our setting. So it is turn of the 19th century Dejima, which is a Dutch manufactured trading island connected to Nagasaki by a single bridge. What did you think of our setting as we got to understand it more? So it's helpful to have that visual, like I was saying before where there's a little image. I think it was Jakob who had like sketched it. What did Jima look like from from the ship? But it felt sort of like, not necessarily a prison, but a little bit like a prison or like a quarantine zone where like it was very secluded, which like we were talking about before, Japan at that time was very much no one allowed in. <laughs> like I don't even think that Europeans were supposed to like set foot on actual japanese soil so dejima's like not even real land it was like man-made yeah it was fabricated island for them and they are yeah. allowed only to pass for certain specific things i didn't the, the one that stood out to me was the brothel like is the brothel mm. it sounded like that was on the mainland from how they could like sit out on the roofs and look out but that wouldn't make any sense so that that was the only thing i found confusing but they did go to like the uh, room of magistrate. 600 mats or whatever it was like the magistrate so they were able to go for like official business yeah. For like a, yeah for official business but they weren't allowed to actually stay there and there's like gatekeepers that like prevent people from coming and going and like it just felt very like a prison or a quarantine zone where like you're not you're free but you're not you're free but, you're but not. constantly yeah. under watch yeah yeah. And yeah, hopefully you get along with the fellow inmates <laughs> because otherwise life will become hell for you. I really liked it because this is just not something I'm very familiar with was mm. this kind of time of Japan. And in the afterward, again, he talks about how much more effort it takes to write a historical fiction because you are trying, you, you are studying and then you have to stay as faithful as you can to the time period and the location so I do believe a lot of the things that he portrayed to be, you know, as close to factual as we know. And the idea of like anything about Japan getting out was considered a capital offense where like you J Japanese couldn't leave because they didn't want them getting out and telling stories of their homeland so that people would know like they wanted it shrouded in mystery. The learning of the language, if, if you were seen to be taught teaching somebody else the language you would be killed because you were giving away japan secrets like there was a lot of that that was very interesting and to see how the dutch either tiptoed around it or didn't i thought that is what helped stand out to show us kind of who we could trust and who we definitely shouldn't as we see with their communications with the magistrate where Vorstenborsch is like i need a damn chair and like he's trying to play the bad cop well, there's not really a good cop in sight and he makes them pile up like six cushions. So he is sitting level with the magistrate, which is a huge thing of dishonor. And he's like, oh, they, you know, whatever. They need to understand European customs or whatever. And it's like, you're on their property. And you see, you see how he acted. Then you see how Jakob acts. And it, again, it just kind of solidifies the kind of person he is. 
and should have solidified for him the kind of people he was working for and maybe prepared him better for what was to come. Good point. It also is very, like, the way that the magistrate and the Japanese people in general take to Jakob compared to Borsenbosch, like... You know, you come in with like a very stiff arm, like Europeans are better kind of attitude and people are going to like not give you what you want. (laughs) You come in with demands for like 10 times the amount of copper and they're going to push back on it. Yeah. Shocking. It just really re-emphasized what we were dealing with here. And again, taking his research as gospel here in a way, uh, I, I could appreciate that what it gave to the story. I, I just felt like he did a really good job of, of having us understand better what they were going through and what Jakob was going through, especially in the beginning and what his decisions could lead to and, and the decisions of others. Like for Rito, if she would have accepted his proposal, what her life would have been. Her life would have been very different right. from where it went, which we'll get into in spoilers, mm-hmm. but also it would have been very different from the life she was used to where she would be yeah. allowed on Dejima, but I don't know what that means for her time in Nagasaki, if that would have kind of painted a black mark on her or how that would have separate her from her family even too, potentially. Correct. Uh, So I I thought he did a good job of kind of giving us more. It it added an air to the consequences and everything else that was going on to the story where obviously it worked well for the plot. And I can see why he said it here. That's so crazy. The last thing kind of just on this was... He is known for his ensemble casts and the names that were coming out of at us. We were not just dealing with the Dutch and the people from the ship who some stayed and some left. And then the people who had kind of set up on Dejima. But then we also had the Interpreters Guild. We had a bunch of them. And then we had the people of Nagasaki and we had the Magistrate and then all of his underlings and all that. There was a lot of unfamiliar names that you had to try to familiarize yourself with and a lot of them were very similar or like if you're not pronouncing pronouncing (laughs) yeah if you're not pronouncing them right it can add to the level of difficulty because you're like oh wait is this the one i was thinking or was that oost or was that oosten wentz or gerd swoon or whatever like this is one of the books where i think it would have been really helpful to have not a glossary although that could have been helpful but like a a cast cast list because I feel like some books have that especially when it's like more familial and you can say like this person's related to that person but like that would have been really helpful in this book to have like this these are the people in Dejima these are the people in Nagasaki like the you know like that would have been helpful yeah I absolutely agree and like you don't like I was thinking of like the wheel of time where they have the pronunciations in the back and like I know not everybody needs help with the pronunciations and Mitchell is European so they're probably better at us at it than us Americans but it definitely would have helped me to to see kind of where we were trying to pronounce these names yeah totally instead of just guessing doing it well and that's what we were talking about before we started recording but I started reading this and I found it on audible so I was able to listen to it which really helped but there's still so many characters that I found myself even though I could hear their names and that sort of roadblock was taken away there was the additional roadblock of there's so many I still have lost track of who is who and it did just seem that there's a lot that use similar letters like sounding things so it's like which one is this one um and especially well, and for a while they stopped they had started using like they were using Ibagawa 
for her, but they didn't, I feel like they didn't bring in her, or the Orito didn't come in until, like, later. And so for a while, I was like, wait, what? <laughs> it didn't until she told uh, Yaka her. Yeah, her, that's right. That's, that's what it right. was. When he and told then, him, or when he told her his name. Yeah. Yes, that's when we, we learned Orito. So speaking of cast, there's a bunch of others, but the two I wanted to focus on here was Dr. Marinus from the Dutch and Uzemon Ogawa from the Japanese. I want to know what you thought of these two men. Again, going with who we interact with first, uh, it would be Ogawa that we meet before Marinus. So what did you think of Ogawa? I really liked him. I felt like there was a instantaneous like, chemistry between him and Jakob obviously because he they both sort of knew that he found contraband book but didn't call it out so there's like immediately some level of I wouldn't call it blackmail because it's not like Ogawa ever asked for anything but I think there's a little bit of a like I think I can trust this person because they've done me a solid and I think he warns him at some other point too later on about this the psalm book but like his moral compass seemed well aligned with Jakob's right out of the gate and I think he could tell that Jakob had a bit of a bit more than the other Europeans sort of like interest in respecting the Japanese culture which is probably endearing (laughs) yeah I think with Ogawa the thing that stood out was their initial meeting so Jakob is coming ashore with his uh, sea chest full of books like 30 40 books whatever and he tries to hide his family psalter in that because it's the book of psalms that has been passed down through the men of his family since his great grandfather i believe it was and that book was in his coat pocket and stopped a bullet from hitting him in the heart and it's still there and it's the basically that's the family thing like if if he wasn't carrying this we wouldn't be here so while Jakob thinks i could leave this behind on the boat that will then sail and I'll never see it again. It's like too important to me. Like I'm going to risk. Yeah. I'm going to risk incarceration, potentially death because Catholicism is so outlawed in Japan that if you are caught praying, if you are caught trying to spread the word of Catholicism, you are crucified. That's how they deal with you. So this contraband could see him go, you know, it depends on what level they want to take on him. So I liked that their initial meeting, Ogawa comes out because he's one of the interpreters who knows Dutch uh, and is able to go on to Jima for those reasons. And he's like, hopefully the guy doesn't know anything about books. He'll just pass it by. And Ogawa's like, what's the word? Bibliophile? Is that the word? And he's like, fuck. <laughs> <laughs> so then Jakob is sweating. And this is where we meet Artie Grote and some others. And he's freaking out because he knows like Ogawa is going over the books. He's going to find the Psalter. And then Ogawa comes up to him and I feel like Ogawa knows that he knows that he knows. And he's like, I need to talk to you about this book. I need to talk to you about this book. So Jakob's like, just take me away, throw me in irons, whatever you're going to do. And it's, I forget which one it's, it's a book of research that uh, Ogawa said they had had a copy somewhere and it, it became lost and, he got, he was very interested in it and he was hoping he could either pay for it or trade for it or whatever. And Jakob's like, you can just, you can have it. I think it's like the, the Nation of Species or something like that. It was some kind of research book that Ogawa was interested in. Well, and Jakob is, Wealth of Nations. Wealth of Nations. Totally way off. Yeah, that does sound right. But Ogawa just wanted that because they didn't have a copy anymore. 
And uh, he, he was very, I don't think he got to finish reading it or something like that. But I, I do feel like in that moment, he was fucking with Jakob, knowing that he knew and kind of saying like, hey, if I knew this, I knew that. So like there, there's that level of budding trust between the two. And I think it's like you said, immediately they could tell like Ogawa was a reasonable man, kind of a newer yes. generation of Japan that could understand so like, this isn't him trying to push something. This is obviously something important to him. And this man knows our rules so obviously it's something important enough that he need, he wants to hold on to and take this risk whereas the other interpreter like i believe it was kobayashi or something like that would have immediately just skinned him alive in the street yeah that guy's a jerk yeah they have like a sort of like secret language of like i know that you brought this book and i'm going to tell you that i know by telling you about this other thing <laughs> But so, like, that's the thing, like, Jakob is intelligent enough to kind of get that hidden text, but not intelligent enough to read the room about, like, his employer. <laughs> right. Well, I, I think maybe he thinks all of them will be honorable, and of course they aren't. Yeah. And so Ogawa... He expects just, too much of people. Yeah, Ogawa yeah. lives up to it while the others do not. So yeah. that, that's part of it. And then later on, as Jakob decides that he's going to propose to Arito by giving her his dictionary... He chooses to use Ogawa to to deliver that message. That was uh, like a taking him down a peg or two. Ogawa not explaining to Jakob the history that he had. That actually really irked me. Finding that out later because we didn't know that at yeah. the time. Yeah. No, we didn't. Yeah. But like looking back at it, I was like, that jerk. Like, he could have just said something. Well, I don't think... You're thinking Ogawa was the jerk there? I think he was the jerk. Like, he could have said, by the way, I had this history with Arito. Like, I just feel like he... It was a lot. It was a lie of omission that I feel like was hurtful to their friendship. But he didn't stop. He didn't stop. No, he didn't. I know. I just feel like that's important information to have because I feel like if Jakob is so moral or whatever, he would have probably thought twice about the ramifications of giving the book, like transporting it through Ogawa. You know what I'm saying? Like, Yeah. And I, and I think Jakob does feel that when he learns about Ogawa's feelings for her later on. But the fact that Ogawa still went through with it, like he had a, a servant, I believe, deliver the book to her instead of him himself... But the fact that he still went through with it, I think, shows his character more here. But what you're saying is like, or what I'm interpreting you're saying is like, he didn't give Jakob the chance to like, show his true colors too, where obviously if he knew- Understand the situation fully. Like, I think that, well, I mean, that, that to me is like, if he, if, if Ogawa had explained to Jakob the history that he and Orito had had, Jakob would have- probably questioned whether or not this was a good move because like does he even have a chance like if this is if there's some i know that agawa i think he knows agawa is married to another woman but like if arito's affections are maybe not even like an option that would have been nice for him to know you know what i mean yeah and it was interesting just with the too because this happened so quickly like he was betrothed in a way to anna if he could raise the funds and his status to to meet her father's demands. But he like quickly fell head over heels with Arito where he was constantly questioning himself. Why am I doing this? I don't know why I'm doing yeah. this. It's so weird, but also I can't stop thinking about this woman. Like th- there's a lot of interesting just back and forth there in his own mind as he tried to figure it out. So I thought the proposal was a bit of a jump of the gun, but 
I don't know. Maybe that's how you did it back then because he's thinking I mean, I'm gonna like, five years and I don't know, whatever. The proposal to me seems very not clear. <laughs> like here, my proposal is a gift of a dictionary, not like an explicit will. I mean, like I know he sent a letter or whatever, yes. but still. It might not have been like, we're going to get married tomorrow. Like I think he, the letter. Ex- court. Yeah, I want to court exactly. you. <laughs> and uh, again, why I feel like Ogawa should have been like this was a thing. Yeah, and for those who haven't read the book, Ogawa and Rito were supposed to be married, and then Ogawa's family shut it down, basically saying that she wasn't, she wasn't high enough stature for him. And Ogawa was adopted because the family he was adopted by had lost their children, mostly in their young childhood, but their one of their oldest sons uh, didn't make it. I don't think to his teenage years he was the oldest mm. of the five, I believe there were. So they brought in Uzeman. <laughs> to continue their family name and their practice of being interpreters and all that. So they had a lot more say on what he did and they didn't think Arito was good for good enough for him. So they set him up with somebody else and, but the heart wants what the heart wants. So he still struggled with that uh, decision and that kind of spurning of her. Like there was still love between them. He kept the letters she had written him. So there, there was a lot more history there that we kind of get briefly later on. It's like, Oh shit. Yeah. That was weird. Asked him to do that. Yeah. Um, so the other one I wanted to touch on here was Dr. Marinus and what you thought about him as we got to know this very peculiar foreigner. I loved him. Yeah. I thought he was like snarky and like the perfect kind of progressive papa figure for the whole Dejima situation. I appreciated very much that he like even in the very beginning when we meet Arito and she's wifing to the magistrate's courtesan like he is involved but like not trying to like white man explain to her how to do something he's like conferring with her like an equal and understanding that in this environment she is probably the one with with more experience and i just really appreciated his his learned man teaching others situation And I liked how this was a little bit of a lessening of Japan's strictness, where they were allowing some of their academics and doctors to learn the Dutch style of medicine, the European style of medicine, which Arito uses in her midwifery, because it's it's more advanced at this point than what the Japanese are doing. So there's more knowledge there. So Marinus is able to kind of lead classes where he has four like apprentices from Japan coming over to kind of study with him. And then Arito gets to join because again, how she works her way up through her opportunities, but also her skill when she is able to deliver the magistrate's child alive after the original doctor left and basically didn't want the death on his hands and left. He wasn't, he never even went. He was there and he saw this, like he wasn't there in the book, but I think he went and saw the scenario and just left. So they called. Oh, I thought he straight up. Like, they told him what, like, I, I assumed somebody, like, sent a messenger, here's what's going on, he sent a messenger back, being like, nope. That is possible, too, and that's probably why Marinus was there as well. I, I assume Marito was actually probably there the whole time, being the midwife side of it, but I, I think the doctor right. did abandon ship, so it was left on her. But because she did that, the magistrate allowed her to go to Dejima. Yeah. You're not supposed to be able to go to Dejima as a woman from Japan, unless right. you are a married wife or uh, yeah. a Yes. So that, I guess that would make sense that the brothel was on Dejima. So, yeah. Yeah, so <laughs> answering our own questions. <laughs> yeah. He was the exception of the rule there. As far as Marinus is concerned, he stood out 
very similar to Jakob where he just wanted knowledge. Yeah. And he talks about that at one point, this is much later on, but it's not really a spoiler where he talks about the men he learned from and how one of them said, once you become an academic, once you become a professor, your time is up. Like you're no longer moving forward. You become a, basically he doesn't say all this, but like you become accustomed to it and you start to die because you're no longer out there in the field. You're no longer, yeah, experiencing, you're just spewing things to other people. And so Marinus didn't want that. And the reason he's been in Dejima so long is he's allowed to travel to the academy in Japan to talk to their scholars. And while he does that, he is gifted little bits of time where he can go out and research the flora. And that's what he wants. He wants to just look through the plants of Japan and catalog them. And this is like his life life's work at this point. And he has so much respect for the people, the culture, the country, that a lot of those that deal with him deal with him with a higher reserve of respect compared to the other Dutchmen or the other foreigners that they kind of see as just pushing their way around. Again, like you were saying, he wasn't your typical white man trying to step on everybody. He understood the situation and was just there to offer what help he could without being a hindrance. Uh, and we see that right off the bat. So Marinus was strong throughout and I appreciated that. Yeah, I did have concerns when Jakob gets to Jajima and like takes that sheet music over because he'd heard that he placed the harpsichord or whatever and was like trying to, I guess a peace offering, but just like sort of an introductory thing, like a gift. And Marinus is kind of like a giant dickwad. It just is very understandable given the other Dutch officers <laughs> that have been there. I can understand Marinus's like initial reaction, assuming that Jakob is just going to be like one of the many self-serving guys coming in there just for, you know, whatever. And then I think a few things happen and Jakob kind of stands up for himself a little bit in regards to Marinus's cold shoulder. Um, and I appreciated that. And then there's just sort of this like begrudging shift that Marinus takes towards Jakob. And then they become friends. And I really appreciate their friendship. Yeah. And he's was... such a nerd. <laughs> <laughs> that was one thing I had on here was with comparing Ogawa to Marinus. They're so similar in the way that they stand out from their countrymen and how they are yeah. men of like the the future, I guess, or whatever, where they're, they're, they're not stuck in the past ways where they understand they can learn from each other, where the, if they respect each other, they can get so much more out of each other. And there's an understanding there as long as you respect the other person too. But where they differ is on Jakob, where Oka- Ogawa immediately sees him as kind of an equal in this person who like loves information and research and has an appreciation of words and all that. So Ogawa is drawn to him and treats him as an equal. And Marinus sees him as another Dutch as you were just saying, yeah. where like he questions, I've seen enough of you guys. I question your judgment. Jakob is immediately over, is smitten with Arito. And I think that turns Marinus off as well, where he kind of sees himself as her protector when she's on Dejima. Mm-hmm. And he's like, okay, listen here, redhead. You stay away from her. You know, she's not just another one of these floozies that comes around here. She is like a special gift. And we learn that again later on. Marinus talks about how a teacher can live indefinitely if his students continue passing on his knowledge. And you see how much he cares about her, specifically Arito, because he sees how how special she is. I think that Jakob's desire for her 
is kind of that wedge between them where Marinus is saying, you just got here and you're already trying to take away my prized pupil. Like, mm. let's get to know each other first. And they do have those moments where for 20 minutes of talking to Rito, Jakob basically gets to show them how a... Um, uh, An what is enema word? No, like... Oh, the, a suppository. Suppository. Yeah, Jakob gets to be the, the suppository doll and show them how that works out. And he gets to drop his britches in front of all them. And then later on, he gets worked in a game of billiards where Marinus does the old school. Oh, let's go double or nothing. And suddenly I'm really good at this game. Tends to be terrible at the game. Yeah. Yeah. You owe me 12 hours in my garden. So there is a lot to Marinus. I was skeptical of him at first, just wondering if he was an old curmudgeon. But you can see that him and Jakob were going to work well together at some point for sure. Well, they, and I think it it comes back to like the characters that are most closely aligned with their moral compasses like Jakob and Ogawa and Marinus and Orito they all have like a very similar vein of moral they're all pointing north yeah like calls to like right so it, yes. it makes sense that they would work it out eventually so pre-spoilers we end with Jakob refusing to lie about the amount of copper leaving the harbor and therefore being demoted and promised five years of misery on the Jima. As he stews about this, he sees Arito frantically trying to get across the bridge from Nagasaki, and he hesitates long enough in going to her that she is taken against her will. What were your thoughts at this moment concerning Jacob and our story? I mean, I felt like it was definitely going to be a tipping point of some kind. It turned out to be a little bit more intense than I was anticipating. <laughs> Just a wee bit. But, I don't know. I feel like even if he had gotten to her in time... I feel like it's very possible that it wouldn't have resulted in any change in the storyline because hey, him being a Dutchman on Dejima and her being only sometimes allowed to go to Dejima, that he doesn't have much clout in this scenario. And I feel like the efforts he made, like even if it was her going and being like, he proposed marriage and I'm going to marry him, I feel like it might not have, it might not have worked. Yeah, especially with who they were going up against. Um, yeah, exactly. Word was a lot, Enemoto's word was a lot stronger than Jakob's was at that point. I would say the only thing it could have done was assuaged some of his guilt at feeling like sure. he put her down if he, he would try yeah. something. But as far as our story is concerned at this point, I'm like, where are we going? <laughs> like For real. It, it felt like this, this whole first part was a lot longer uh, and it did set great foundation for moving forward, but it just felt like this moment and then what comes next, which was a little confusing with how it starts, but it's like, okay, now we're getting into the story. Like we've covered the background. We know where we are, all that stuff. Okay. Now this is where it starts to get a little bit crazy uh, or take yeah. on a world of its own. And that is what happened. So this was kind of the turning point for me where I was like, okay, all right, now now I'm no longer putting it down as often. I'm definitely more invested in the story, finding out what's actually happening here. So I did appreciate that. But as we moved forward from this point, I felt like Jakob took a back seat for quite a while. And that's when I started wondering, like, what was all that time we just spent with this guy for? Is he really an important part of this or what's going on? Yeah, he's like titular. Why are we <laughs> right? why are we moving so far and away it felt from like him? He, that was his moment. That was the moment our <laughs> hero arises and he didn't, which probably is what happens in re- in the real world. And I was just like, what what are we doing here? And like that that was yeah. where I took a second back from the book and was like, okay, but then you get more into it, you're like, oh, okay, now I'm ready to go. 
Yeah. Yeah. So before we get into all that, we have your get to know your podcaster question. And this was a difficult one. So we stretched the batteries a little bit, but Jakob is faced with five years into Jima to earn enough money and make a name for himself to earn the permission of Anna's father to marry her. Times are very different now, but if you had to immerse yourself somewhere else in the world for five years by yourself, where would you choose to go and why? This is really tough. As you said, this was a hard section to come up with a question for, and so my answer is a little bit... <laughs> Our world is very different from their world because we, we were talking about this pre-show. Yeah, that's right. We're doing that now, pre-show, yeah. uh, where we were discussing about how different it was where communication was a year or two away. Where you send a letter and hopefully they responded right if away. That, you know, if a ship you, even you know, comes back. Yeah, or the ship sinks and you you never get the, the letter. You have no idea what's yeah. going on. You're way more secluded and all that. And the world is just much more closed off. Whereas nowadays, there's not as many mysteries out there. We are connected by this internet, which is how you are listening to this. Hello. Uh, and and also, you know, you can send a text, an email, phone call, whatever. So it's it's not really the same. And there wasn't... There's a few things maybe post spoilers that we could have gotten into, but you can't get into that without giving more of the the dog away or whatever the saying is I'm trying to think of there. Giving away the goat. There it is. That's a thing. Anyway. It is now. So yeah, it's a little bit of a stretch, but if you had to be marooned, I guess, or immersed into some kind of culture for five years, give us your answer. So my meh answer is probably somewhere in like Latin America because I'm trying to learn Spanish. That'd be the main reason is because like immersing myself in a Spanish speaking country is probably going to be the best way to learn that a language. But I, I think maybe like Guatemala or like Peru or somewhere. I mean, Machu Picchu sounds really cool, but like that co- sort of part of the world where there's like super old history. I mean, like same with Japan, there's super old history. I mean, like, America is like a teeny tiny little baby compared to these other places. So I think that would be really cool from a cultural, historical perspective, but mainly it would be for, like, immersion in the language. So, like, I could go to Mexico, but, like, I think somewhere like the South American continent would probably be, I don't know, shitty answer. Oh, as, like, maybe Patagonia or something. Like, that that just sounds more fancy. (laughs) Let's go to Patagonia. Yeah. Well, I mean, also just like geographically speaking, like the nature aspect of those places is also really cool. So, yeah, I mean, there's like the adventurer part of me would appreciate that. And the linguist part of me would probably be better at Spanish if I could just like jump right in instead of just duolingoing. Would potentially survive. You would potentially survive if the language. Maybe. Yeah. Certainly with our technology and Google Translate. (laughs) I give you more than a meh for that answer. Oh, thanks. Uh, For me, I was trying to think of somewhere we haven't been because we do a lot of traveling that I would still think would be a challenge Mm. to immerse myself. You know, it's like, oh, dude, I would hands down, I'd move to Ireland in a minute just because the country's so beautiful. Oh, Australia. Yeah. Yeah. Or Australia, very English speaking and so much like Australia, especially so much you could explore there and you five years would go by in a flash, I'm sure. But my answer was Scandinavia, somewhere Norway, Finland, Sweden, probably Sweden would be the one that I hit first, just because it is a different culture there. It is a different language. I'm sure a lot of them speak English still, but I would want to try to immerse myself in Swedish or Norwegian, whatever. And I would just want to experience that kind of the darkness of winter 
And then what that brings with the jubilation of like spring, summer, like mm -hmm. those short months where you have so much daylight where they do these incredible parties there, at least so I've heard and like big get togethers. And then you also have like their different holiday traditions and all that. Mm -hmm. And the biggest thing, hockey. I feel like I could finally get better at skating if I was in a place where the fucking ice actually froze. So that would be yes. cool. But nice. uh, yeah. I just also thought that that was just, it's somewhere I've never been where I do actually want to go at some point, the Scandinavia. And I've read a lot about it. And I think that, I don't know, it would be, it would be interesting. And I still think it would be a challenge to pick up like the local dialect and all that. Uh, but I could easily survive, I think on my pantomimes and good looks, of course. So yeah, so a little bit of a different take, but you know, hey, we, we get to know your podcasters as you get to know your podcasters. So take it or leave it. There you have it. Yep. Let us know your answer in the comments. We get zero to one every episode. I'll let you know. <laughs> so many guys. But on that note, it is time to get to spoilers and discuss the rest of this book. And uh, to do that, before we do, we have your song. It goes like this. This is the pot that we're going into spoilers. If you don't know the book, get out. Because this is the pot that we're going into spoilers. It's time to learn what Jakob de Zot is all about in spoilers. And it's going to take a turn, folks. So if you don't know the book and want to read the book, get out. You've been warned. After her father's death, Arito is bought by Enemoto and taken against her will to live in the nunnery attached to the Mount Shiranui shrine in his domain. Here, Arito slowly learns that the women are drugged and believe that they are given gifts of pregnancy by the monks who live there in service to the goddess. These children are then given to good families for them to raise and write back to their mothers yearly to tell them of their lives. After 20 years in service to the goddess and having given many gifts, the women are allowed to descend from the mountain and live their lives on a stipend. Arito learns that the children never leave the compound and are killed in a ritual to the goddess that grants Enemoto and his followers the gift of immortality. She eventually finds the means to escape, but then returns when overburdened by the feelings of leaving the other women to die. She uses her new information against Enemoto to ensure she will never be gifted with pregnancy as long as she stays here and serves as midwife to the other sisters. Meanwhile, one of the monks, Yuritsu, loses a battle with his conscience and escapes the shrine with a small scroll outlining the order's creeds and treachery. He makes it to a local herbalist named Uote before he dies. Uote knows Urito and worries about her captivity. She also knows that Urito was in love with Uzemon Ogawa and that he is trustworthy. She travels to Nagasaki and gives the scroll to Ogawa, who with the help of his sensei, Shuzai, begin to plan a rescue. Before they leave, Ogawa gives the scroll to Jakob de Zot, knowing that he can hide it in case this all goes poorly. Shuzai and Ogawa make the trek up the mountain with 11 other fighters. The plan is to take Arito peacefully, but use force if necessary. Ogawa stays behind so he is not recognized by Enemoto in the attempt, but after some time, two of the other soldiers come to get him, saying two women have burned faces and they need him to identify Arito. Once in the compound, Ogawa is face to face with Enemoto, who tells him that Shuzai was his friend long before Ogawa and has betrayed him. The rescue attempt ends with Enemoto shooting Ogawa to death a few rooms away from his true love, Arito. Almost two years pass from Ogawa's failed rescue attempt, and we find an English ship masquerading as a Dutch trading vessel is headed to Dejima. The captain named Penhaligon has been sent to take over the Dutch outpost to begin English diplomacy in Japan or steal everything from the Dutch, including this year's shipment of copper. 
He has been directed here with the help of the disgraced ex-chief of Dejima, Snicker. When the ship reaches Dejima, flying the Dutch colors, a welcome party is sent out and Chief Van Cleef and Deputy Fisher are taken hostage. The Dutch colors are lowered and the Union Jack raised, so all know the truth about what is going on. Jakob is named de facto Chief of Dejima, and the remaining hands take it a step further, electing him president. He meets with the magistrate of Nagasaki named Shiroyama, who informs him that the garrisons are greatly undermanned and the Japanese need a few days to muster troops to defend. Jakob comes up with a plan to try and burn the British ship, but before it can happen, they run out of time. While Jakob is meeting with the magistrate, Deputy Fisher is meeting with the Japanese Chamberlain as he has taken on the role of envoy with the British. They tell him that they need time to think on the British's terms and send him back with a sealed letter. Likewise, Dr. Marinus tells Fisher that the men of Dejima will also bend to the English and send a letter of his own to the captain. When the letters are open, the Dutch and Japanese go against everything they told Fisher to his face. They will never accept the British and urge them to leave before they are unable to. This spurns Captain Penhaligon to retaliate the next day by firing upon Dejima and Nagasaki unintentionally. As the Jima is being shelled, Jakob and Marinus stand atop the watchtower in the face of the cannons. After two volleys, Jakob removes his hat and begins to pray. Penhaligon sees Jakob's red hair and is reminded of his son. He stops the final salvo and immediately leaves the port. Jakob is seen as a hero and is given an audience with the magistrate where he passes him the scroll that describes the treachery of Mount Shirinui. The magistrate has dishonored himself with the lack of attention he gave the garrisons of Nagasaki and has decided to commit seppuku. He asks Enomoto to wield the second sword, but not before they finish their long-standing game of Go. The magistrate loses the game, and he, Enomoto, Chamberlain Tomine, and an acolyte have a ceremonial sake toast. Enomoto has always feared being poisoned, so they use his sake from his gourd. Knowing this, Shiroyama poisoned the glasses, and sacrificed himself and Tomine in order to kill the evil that is Enomoto. Our book ends with 11 more years passing and Jakob being allowed on Japanese soil to bury Dr. Marinus. He also has an 11-year-old son named Yuan, who is half Japanese. While at the funeral, he sees Orito is there and the two have a conversation as they leave. She is now a highly regarded <laughs> midwife in Yako and travels with Yayo, the woman she returned to Mount Shirinai to save. Jakob comes clean about how he delayed in trying to save her at the gates all those years ago, but she forgives him, telling him that, well, it would have saved her pain. Because of his indecision, the wheels were set in motion to stop the evil that was happening there. Six more years pass, and then it is Jakob's time to leave Dejima. He has served as chief for 17 years, but was denied the right to live on in Japan as it was unprecedented. Because Yuan is half Japanese, he is not allowed to leave with Jakob, which leaves him with one choice. It is time to return home. He is given a hero's welcome and has plenty of job opportunities. He marries a much younger woman and they start a family. When he is in his 60s, he dies surrounded by family and the ghost of Rito comes to him and kisses him on the forehead. Oof. Again, I apologize for any mispronunciations, as I'm sure there were. I also think I steered you wrong in the herbal lady's name. It's Otane. Otane. Okay. I think. I mean, when I just looked it up. Again, we apologize. So. Yeah. Otane. Moving on. The book takes a turn with the shrine of Mount Shiranui and everything going on there. What did you think of everything we learned about this place? And these questions are like, we have a lot to cover here, so it's very vague, but what? 
<laughs> did you think about everything that was happening? I mean, I wrote, holy fucking shit, that's dark. And that Enomoto is an asshole. All the, the things that we discover about the temple, whatever, the shrine, whatever it is, Chirinui. It's bonkers, totally bonkers, and, like, absolutely the long game, and the fact that he's in such a position of power to, like, keep it going for so long and, like, quell any dissenters and, like, very groupthink kind of, like, issues is crazy. Like, this was ugh. This was another one <laughs> where I was questioning the, because this was before mm-hmm. I learned that Japan was known as the Land of a Thousand Autumns. So as we're learning about what Enomoto has been going on, or going through and how he had gained Kyoga domain uh, or his great great grandfather somebody had gained it centuries ago and still holds it in his family but really it was Enomoto the whole time I was sitting here thinking like does does Jakob like go 180 here and suddenly now he is like stealing baby souls and becoming the man of a thousand autumns doesn't turn out that way but this was where the fiction comes into the historical oh fiction right and certainly I hope so my that, god <laughs> yeah right no, we found this man. It's like the Nick Cage where they see Nick Cage in <laughs> pictures. He's been around the whole time. But there's a lot of warning signs with Enemoto. Jakob has the dealings with him with the Mercury. And he's told, like, this is not a man you want to upset. This is not a man you want to go against. He has more power than the magistrate, even though this isn't his domain. He is, like, in the ear of the Shogun. You need to worry about this man. Don't try whatever you're thinking. Don't, don't. fuck with him. Exactly. So as that was coming up and kind of just how Enemoto was portrayed in his dealings with the different people, you could feel the sleaze coming off of him. So it didn't, oh my su- God, yeah. it didn't surprise me that something like this was going on. But yeah, I didn't picture with our first part, this suddenly going into like, we're having a baby harvesting shrine that then we kill them before they get to two weeks old. Because once they're two weeks, the soul is like entrapped in the body. We need to get it Believe before them. that. The thing that I, the, the like extra super duper long game that they were playing where when Naruto is escaping and she finds the like room where they're writing the letter, the, the letters from the fake children that they've already killed and they're basic, which totally makes sense. And she says something like the women, the sisters are all willing to do this because they think that there's something waiting for them. And right. they think that their kids are living this like grand, fantastic life down below the mountain. And like, that deception i mean killing the babies is terrible but like keeping them docile i mean they're literally drugging them and (laughs) they're mentally fucking with them to the point of just such massive deception and yes all of these women are like physically disfigured in some way and so they probably wouldn't have in culturally speaking good quality lives if they were not living in the shrine that does not make it acceptable like the whole like how Enomoto can sleep at night is that he's telling himself he's doing these women a favor which is just such absolute sleazeball yeah and that is how he's sleeping at night because we learned that later on in his confession I guess is he's cornered by um Shuriya- Shuriyama the magistrate yeah. you can just say yeah, that the <laughs> when he's cornered by the magistrate and he says, like, I saved these women from brothels and from short lives. Like, they actually get to live, whereas, like, they would probably be killed uh, in this lesser life. But I am giving them life. Yeah, you're also treating them for their wombs again, like, treating they are nothing ca- else. They are cattle. They are, yes. like, they're strictly for your or his desires. I mean, he's not even the one banging them. He's the one killing their children and sucking the soul out or whatever 
creepy and, shit. And, and he even goes on to say, like, it's our crop that we harvest, meaning the baby. Yeah. So, like, who are you to yeah. tell us? Yeah, exactly. And there were moments with Arito when she's talking to Yayo, and Yayo tells her about how her experience before this was very bad, right? She was in a brothel. Yeah. So here, here I know my children are happy, all that. But it's all built on those fabricated lies. Yes. And then we learn later on that when they descend, when they come down off the mountain, they are given one night at this stay at this haberdashery, I believe it was, the, the hotel haberdashery or something like yeah. that. And the owner drugs them there, or a drug is given and to they them. they die. And they die in their sleep. And then there's Unmarked 81 of them out behind in a bamboo place. Yeah. And how Uzaman, like, happens across that. And then the, like, proprietor of the inn has, like, a perfectly logical explanation. Yeah. It's just people who died at the inn, which is technically true. The the amount of people that Enomoto had in his pocket was pretty disgusting. I mean, it makes sense. Yeah, it's been around for years. Pretty gross. Yeah. Yeah. Evil, evil man. And I do think he... It makes sense that he would go after Arito. So her father... Her father was a samurai who fell on hard times, started loaning money, and then dies unexpectedly. So Enomoto goes to the uh, Arito stepmother and is basically like, I will forgive your debts because those money lenders are in my pocket and I, I had this all by design if you sell me Arito. So Arito becomes his property because his thought is, if I have a midwife, less of the women will die in childbirth. And also and I'm I sure they're- I'm sure their gifts, their gifts were dying in the childbirth as well. So he thinks he is helping the shrine out by getting a midwife. But what he fails to realize, and this is like all terrible men assume that they are smarter than they are. He does not think that Arito, for everything she has fought to become, would fight against this too. And that's just that blunder. It's always like the the simplest thing you overlook that becomes your downfall. That blunder was definitely his downfall that and obviously the scroll getting out but if Arito wasn't there these men Ogawa Yaka they would not care as much and even the magistrate to that point where when he is given the scroll the reason he feels more compelled to act on it is because she saved his child in childbirth as we spoke about earlier so he overstepped by going after this person who was very highly thought of in the community yeah yeah totally I mean, that's just like very stereotypical evil bad guy who's been ruling over everything for so long, thinking that like there are no consequences and he can get away with everything. What a jerk. I thought it was interesting with the Rito's escape where she's trying to find a rope to scale the walls or to to climb yeah. up the other side of the walls. And that's when we get to see kind of the visualization of the temple and how it's grown mm-hmm. out, where we see the different levels of their goddess and kind of how long... I, I, to me, at least, there was a depiction of how long this has been going on. It's the layers of decay yeah. as she goes through four different temple rooms, I guess, with four different depictions of the goddess to the original one, which is like even set up as a cradle. Like her hands are created as like a cradle to hold the baby that I assume they're sacrificing there for her, them, it, whatever. I thought that was an interesting way to give us uh, more of an idea of how long this has been going on. And, like and kind the of show us that this evil is very deep seated here. Yeah. Yeah, totally. At first I thought it was like a weird like fever dream kind of thing. 
And then I didn't. And then I realized that it was like actually part of the structure. <laughs> and then the fever dream was the cat talking to her, telling her how to escape. <laughs> that was the fever right. dream. I mean, she was like being drugged with opiates for like quite some right. time. So. And then the last thing I want to touch on here was the fact that the monk that gets away, who kind of sets the wheels in motion, he writes down the scroll and or the, the creed on the scroll, which then when people read, they're like, holy fucking shit. Because it talks about how they get rid of these gifts and how it gives them life whatever but the fact that he dies at utane or however we're saying her name for her house the monks are given a daily antidote to the drug that they are to the poison in their system so if they escape they will die before they can testify to what is going on like such a long game so so well thought out in many different ways which Um, is like disgusting because like that's a lot of just like really terrible shit to do just to keep your like and i think i don't remember who says it to him but somebody must have been the magistrate says to him that like or maybe it was agawa anyway like he knew what he was doing was wrong because he's working so hard to keep it a secret and emoto he does but he also thinks like because i think that's part of it is they think with what's going on, yes, they gain immortality, but I think he also thinks it's his way of like keeping the river running and all like they're they're getting blessings from the goddess through this engiftment. Sure, but like, but if you thought that that was the case, wouldn't you be like advertising that you've done these things to like keep things? Wouldn't you be like, look at how much of a favor I'm doing for you? I think he accepts it in the fact that people think yoga domain is doing so well yeah like for a small domain he has high status and the fact that they're prospering like i think he he handles it that way because even he knows as you were saying like these the way they're doing it would not be accepted people would fight against that so yeah terrible stuff last thing i wanted to say on this before we move on is i did appreciate how orito became more of a center point for our story here we're now we're seeing things through her eyes, obviously, but it just gave us a deeper look into an already strong character. And I thought that Mitchell did well continuing to portray her as thus. When she escapes using the hollow that she finds through the cat, uh, and then the cat in her fever dreams comes back and tells her, how do you think I got out, idiot? Figure it out. But she escapes and she finds out all these terrible things. And then she realizes that if she leaves, Yayo is currently carrying twins and she will not survive without the help of a midwife, without the help of a talented midwife. And Yayo is the only one who has been kind to her. I guess the housekeeper was kind to her as well, but of all the sisters, it was just Yayo. So she is free. She is away from the walls and can walk away clean. And instead she goes back. And then again, kind of just going back to what we were talking about pre-spoilers with her and Marinus and Ogawa and Jakob, it just shows that level of, morality and how they put others above self so they refuse to to let others suffer just because it would make their life easier now she does use the information she gains so that enomoto won't engift her uh and she can then stay and help the sisters as best she can be as peaceful as you can while still being prisoner and witness to these terrible things so she does get something out of it but still she could have been free so for her to have gone back i think was a very powerful moment for her character yeah i think she like the strong female lead thing just keeps coming back i appreciated that there was sort of a moment where she was 
not really psyching herself up, but she was like really questioning the like, is the one life, is my one life more important than all these other lives? And like, it would be unrealistic to expect her to not have that thought, you know? You have to sort of weigh it. And it does make sense the choice, the decision she made. But I do appreciate that she kind of like used it to her advantage and like spun spun her knowledge, her new knowledge of the situation to her to her benefit. I mean, as much as is possible. I think that the main thing was just like not being in gifted. Yeah, and it would be interesting <laughs> to see how long that would have lasted if it lasted on its own, just because yeah. I, I feel like even that would break at some point. Like if Yayo was going to descend and she knows I don't I guess she didn't know what dissension meant. But right. I, I, I would assume that she would be able to put together that, like, if women knew what was going on here, they would talk, you know, et cetera. Like, if the babies are fake, then the women, some woman would have discovered that and talked and people would know. So I, I assume she would have been able to put that together. So it'd be interesting to see how long she would have been able to do this. But thankfully, she doesn't have to do it for incredibly long. Because Jakob and the magistrate come to her rescue. But before they did, Ogawa tried. So we have Ogawa's failed rescue attempt. I was wondering if you saw the betrayal coming. And if you did, uh, when you knew it was going to happen. Okay, so I didn't necessarily see the betrayal coming. I certainly didn't expect success. I definitely expected them to fail, but not necessarily because his sense I had had betrayed him. That was a disappointment for sure. But I did expect failure. I shouldn't have expected betrayal only because like things came together like too easily. <laughs> but the the failure, I just like, I mean, he said it a few times how like he was a samurai, but like very much a desk jockey like very out of practice like very not that he's not skilled he's just like rusty and like I couldn't picture him being able to succeed at this and then not that I knew it at the time but like the answer that he got from that innkeeper about the graves it clearly was farther reaching than I think he expected which was again a little bit naive of him but the betrayal really stunk and that the murder scene was a bummer. I was very disappointed. Yeah, to me, it was when his sensei asked if he brought the scroll with the him. scroll. And he tapped his chest yeah. or whatever his stomach was like, I have everything important here. And he meant Rito's love letters. When he, that that's a really good point. Because like when he, when, with his answer, I was sort of like, maybe he expected to get betrayed but maybe not i mean i don't know i i feel like he expected it to fail and that's why he didn't bring it i i think his his goal wasn't for him to survive his goal was to free arito so it made sense that he would trust Jakob because at this point Jakob and his book of psalms has survived uh thrashing of his apartment by kobayashi another interpreter so he knows he can hide it and he trusts Jakob where I don't think he told him it was about a Rito and Jakob doesn't read Chinese or Japanese, whatever it was written in. It was just, yeah. it was Japanese. Cause I felt like he was I saying, was... trying to decipher it. And it was, but anyway. So I thought it was Japanese, but he got Marinus's help because Marinus oh, has from Marinus's Chinese. Chinese. And that Having... was kind of like his. Yeah. So Jakob can't read the scroll, but he knows that it's important to Ogawa. So he hides it. And, well, I, and he knew that she, he was going to rescue Arito too, right? Like he, that was like talked about. 
I don't remember, but I feel like it would make sense that he would. But what he thought? I don't know. I I mean, I agree that I don't know that he told. I don't think he told Jakob what was on the scroll necessarily, but I think mm. he told him that it was like important to the situation. <laughs> that does make sense. He definitely didn't tell him what was on the scroll because otherwise Jakob would have acted sooner, yeah. I believe. Yeah. But obviously he knew it was important. And then when Ogawa's death is reported, that's when Jakob starts trying he to translate. Two together, yeah. Yeah. So I can appreciate again, getting back to the point, Ogawa, this wasn't about him surviving. This is about freeing Arito. So it made sense that he would kind of double that bet if you can to, by yeah. not putting all his eggs in one basket but when his sensei asks him about it that's when i was like fuck this guy's on the take like i just yeah, i felt it and like he put on a good show but again it's that moment where Artie Grote was like don't you do not mess with enemoto i was like why would this guy mess with enemoto why would his sensei sensei like what is he getting out of it he, like he's so- He's not getting enough out of it to give up his life, even though his dojo is failing and all that. I was still like, this just doesn't seem to to make sense. So now that you mention it, I think I did recognize that there was something amiss, but not then. It was when one of the other samurai mercenary dudes offered Uzuman some drink and yes. Uzuman was like, I'm good. And he was like, no, drink it. And I was like, don't do it. <laughs> like, it's obviously poison. Yeah, yeah. 100%. Yeah. And guess what, guys? Yeah, it was that would have been the moment I was like, he's fucked. Turns <laughs> out it was poison and he was fucked. I did appreciate, we learned later on that Enemoto says they used this, though, to kill a spy amongst their midst. Because I think when he's being questioned by the, magist- by the magistrate later on, he's like, why would you let one of your men die? And he's like, oh, we knew it was, we had a spy. So it gave us the probable reason to kill a spy amongst our midst. Yeah, wasn't that when, uh, well, like, right when he was murdering Simon, didn't he say? Oh, did like, he tell he Yeah, you're right. It was, it was Ogawa. Yeah, my time frame is off. But he does he does tell Ogawa. Anyway, I just like that that was, again, he, he was at it He's so thought out. He's very good at the game. He had it so thought out. He then used it more to his advantage. And then he, Enemoto goes on to burn the Ogawa family household down afterwards because he thinks that's where the scroll is and yeah just shockingly Enemoto is a piece of shit didn't that say that was like the end of the family line then too because the dad died without an heir correct even an adopted heir yeah the 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 end of the Ogawa line and then the I think it was the Kobayashis or the Iwazas or something I don't know the the interpreter guild oh yeah people moved up when the Ogawas were moved out so right. speaking of douchebags, the British are coming to take Dejima. What did you think as we started the third part of our story on the, well, first we, we started with one of the slaves in Dejima who then finds Jacob or Jakob over the scroll passed out and then immediately we're transported to the ship of the HMS Phobius or whatever. Phoebus. Phoebus. And what the fuck are we doing here? <laughs> Yeah, okay, so the chapter with, like, the slave and his, like, view of Dejima, I thought was really cool. I actually really liked that bit. It was one, so (laughs) this book was weird, because, like, I read some of it, and I listened to a lot of it, and then I went back and, like, doohickeyed the physical book in the spots that I was like, ooh, (laughs) because I can't doohickey an audible book. Um, You don't just doohickey your phone? I liked that part. I mean, I could, but it would be very useless. Um, but that was one of the parts that I thought was very beautifully written. It was a bit random, but it also was like a neat little window into like 
another inhabitants of Dejima and how they lived because so far we'd just really been in like the European point of view and the a little bit of the Japanese point of view but like this was a different sort of class of being on that island so that was interesting and was he the one was he the one that got completely screwed over by everyone where he was like promised hey look you do this for me you work for me for a couple years and then I'll send you back with enough freedom to get you and your wife or the one that got all beat up by yeah the douchebag because because then he was traded on to the next chief and the, he said, sure, yeah, sure, we'll do that. And then a couple of years later, he was traded on or sold to the next chief. And he was like, I didn't make that promise to you. And he ended up being stuck on Dejima for like 12 years. And he knew that if he went back to Bengal, his, his family would be gone. They would be sold to somebody else. So all these promises were were just bullshit the whole time. Yeah, I mean, I don't think that the guy who was like narrating this bit was that guy, but I think he talks about that guy. But again, it's just the layers, um, like you were saying, the layers yes. of society here. It, he gave us, he didn't just give us the top soil of what was happening on Dejima. He really painted the picture throughout of what was going on. Well, and it also gave you a good, like, Hrota is an asshole. And like, who else his face? Fisher is an asshole. And like, it just was like a neat little viewpoint from the outside of those people in like a different light. So I think Grota is more of an opportunist. That's true. That's true. Fisher's an asshole. asshole. Yeah. Grota's definitely like a, I'm in it for me. How can I get what I need? Yeah. That's a good point. One of my notes for this section is fuck Fisher. Just very. Oh my God. Big time. Fuck Fisher. No, my thoughts about the English coming was like, what? (laughs) like it makes sense for some of the storyline and what kind of tipping points need to happen like uh Jakob turning into like the acting deputy or acting chief or whatever but like there was a lot of time spent with this English ship crew that came out of nowhere yeah it did it felt like left field and then it was still interesting because this was like your moment of conflict where we're building up to like the British are going to do something like the Dutch and the Japanese are digging their heels in. They kind of have their own plan, but they need time to figure it out. And it's all falling on Penhaligon and what he's going to do. And then he is like mixed between fever dream and disease dream where he's dealing with his gout and every all the pain that he's in from that. So he, he thinks that that's making his decisions for him at some point. So it was a page turner. But at the same time, we spent like three or four pages with sauerkraut. <laughs> yeah. yeah, like his his descriptions of places and things and circumstances, especially to do with like body fluids and stuff was like very intense but then also it was a little bit like tolkien-esque like why are we still talking about this thing that really has no we're not moving the story forward here well we're spending time with characters that i think we all knew that they weren't like yes penhaligon obviously plays an important part where he he sees he stops the last volley Right. So he doesn't kill Jakob and, and do more destruction and all that. Sure. It's only because Jakob's redheaded, just like his son. It's like his son died. who had died. But we didn't need 50 pages of that. We could have got it done in 20. This was where it got a little long in the tooth. But again, going back to his research and all that, and again, just like we do with our research on Wikipedia, believing it's true, 
the fact that the doctor thought treating gout was basically cutting it to get the pus going and then putting mouse shit in it was mind-blowing because I can, I mean, and bleeding him, you know, oh, we got to take half a pint. The we got to clear some space in those arteries. Like, what? <laughs> yeah, like, this is how far our understanding of medicine has come. It was impressive. That is actually a really interesting point, though, because when you put this doctor on the ship, whose name I can't remember, next to Marinus, or even Orito, like night and day with their knowledge and their like cutting edge methods, absolutely night and day. Also that bit with the mouse poop, I was in the car and I was like, are you serious? Like, did I just, I was like, should I rewind that? And then I was like, I don't really need to hear about mouse feces again. So I'm not gonna... I mean, there was a lot of questionable shit back in the day. Like, people took mercury. Like, that was, like, a medicinal thing. It makes me very think. As much as I will shit on healthcare now, especially in the U.S., because, like, what the hell is insurance? At least we're not doing stuff like putting mouse turds in open wounds. Not creating open wounds for the mouse turds. (laughs) Put them out. Yeah, good point. Good point. And he's like, oh, this pus is great. And the Captain's like, what? <laughs> that doesn't seem right. Why is it just getting worse? I don't understand. Oh my god. Yuck. That was the thing, like, the fifth page with that image, and, like, he'd already done a decent job describing this painful and horrific-ish birth, and then he has to show us. I'm thankful that there was no visual for the gout, to be honest. Fair. Getting away from gout and mouse turds. The one thing that I liked about this part was it showed a different part about Van Cleef because he had kind of been shown as a scoundrel was willing to lie about the the measures of copper going out of Dejima was willing to lie about everything to get himself to more power but even he had a point where he was like no I will not like fuck you fuck your British king I don't give a fuck about you get away from me everything else and the him compared to Fisher I thought this was a great moment for Van Cleef, who we don't really know what happened to him. That's like, did he? No, that's true. That was kind of like dropped on the ship. Yeah. I think he is on the ship. Yeah. Cause he never came back. Maybe they killed him. Either they killed him or they like forced him into work, whatever they were calling Pressed him. Yeah. Pressed into service. Two things about Van Cleef. One is when he and Jakob are talking on the like porch of the whorehouse. That was interesting. And I feel like Jakob kind of had like a turning point there of like, not necessarily respecting him, but like better understanding. understanding. Yeah. Yeah. Like where he's coming from and whatnot. So that was, that was interesting. And then when they're on the English ship and he and Fisher had just gotten hijacked and Snicker comes by and he like acts all like, Hey, this is great. And then he punches him in the gut. I was like, Yay for Van Cleef. Punches him in the gut and throws him overboard. Oh, that's right. I forgot about that. <laughs> that was fucking awesome. I was also like, yay, Van Cleef. Because before that, I was like, he's just another Vorsten Borsch. But now, like... I was so concerned. Awesome. Yeah. Yeah. No, that was uh, that was like a redemptive moment because I totally thought he was going to be like a Vorsten And like when he first acts excited to see Snicker, I was like, oh my God, is there like some nefarious like thing that he was you know what i mean like is i thought i was remembering it wrong i was like wait do we like we didn't like did he get along with snicker like because he was probably doing like some shady stuff with snicker too but like he also came over didn't like him right and then when he does that i'm like fuck yeah and even when he's like oh your buddy ooster whatever is like missing you 
And then when Fisher, I think, is being the envoy and he tells him that Snickers there, like, Oost, like, cringes because he did not have a good relationship with right. Snickers. So I like right, right, right. he used all that together at the same moment for Bank Leaf. Yeah, very strong. I also like how Fisher, like, got his comeuppance in terms of, like, going back with the letters that said exactly the opposite of what he was saying. Like, fuck that guy. And especially the fact that they were in English, which he couldn't read, even if he did yeah. break the seals. I was like, how is this going to work? Oh, what an idiot. <laughs> and the fact that everything they told him to us. And even the fact that he meets with uh, Tomine, the Chamberlain, uh, because while he's doing that, they realize that they need to talk to Jakob. So the magistrate is with Jakob, but... Uh, they're like keeping him docile with the yeah the and fisher is told like hey oh the the magistrate is ill or something like that so you're gonna right. you're gonna meet in the how the room of 600 mats and 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 so he'll stay over here don't worry about him but meanwhile you, Jakob's actually getting the real work done uh, uh-huh. i liked that as well i also liked how there was dissension in the ranks where not everybody especially his first lieutenant or whatever he was the second in command hovel there yeah, it did kind of go against a lot of things like, again, with this pain and another fever dream, Penhaligon believes that he needs to destroy Dejima. And he kind of says, oh, you know, I remember that my orders were like, if nobody can have it or if we can't have it, nobody can have it. So that's what we're right. going to do. Right. Uh, and they're like, really? And some of them are bloodthirsty because they didn't get their prize of the Dutch ship. So what are we getting out of this anyway? We might as well fire off some guns, all that. But I did appreciate that it wasn't like everybody's a dick bag. Like, again, yeah. there were some people that were actually people. Right. And then finally, because of this, we have the standoff of Jakob against cannons, where he decides to stand on the watchtower looking out and becomes a focal point for the attack where they're firing at him, hoping that they will take him out. I feel like this is the moment we're all building to, because we needed to have something where the magistrate could look at Jakob in a new light, like add respect to him. And like, Uh he's already kind of respected. By the time he's just a lowly clerk there, he's not really anything in the eyes of the magistrate. Right. Don't respect, and I'm sure Ogawa spoke highly of him, whatever. But this is a moment that everyone can can recognize that this is a man of character. And because of that, it allows Jakob to pass on the scroll, which tells about Edimoto and everything he's done. So, again, I kind of I think what we're saying is the same thing where this was very much out of left field with the British are coming. But it had to happen to move our story it forward. Important. It just maybe yeah. took a little bit longer than we first expected. So I feel like it narratively was super important to have a common enemy the british coming in to be like this is ours now and Jakob, as dejima's envoy to nagasaki could say to the magistrate like we need to do this i understand these people we need to do this and the magistrate like you're saying he respects Jakob enough to listen to what he has to say and to trust what he has to say and Jakob is like taking the time to learn Japanese. And like there was that moment when he's first meeting with the magistrate. I think it's like right when the British ship shows up, but maybe not. But like all of his advisors are there. And as soon as Jakob leaves, they're all like, oh, he's so weird. And the guy's like, well, he, you know, like all of the things that he's done are good. Yeah. And like, anyway, the point and is, is that and honorable. Exactly. Like, things we appreciate. Yeah. Right. Is that like they can band together to defend Dejima, but mostly like the whole of Japan, like that's effectively starting a war if they like 
if shit goes down in a different way and then it's like they're just on the same side it was a sort of a tipping point for dutch japanese relations (laughs) and to that point the magistrate is told his garrison of a thousand has 63 soldiers or whatever it was and he's now in a terrible spot so when uh, Jakob gives him a reasonable way to get out of this you know he 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 latches on to that. I will say, I think it would have been a little far-fetched. We'll see if it actually would have worked out. Obviously, we don't get that moment. But he even mentions, like the magistrate mentions in his message to Ito, he's like, I told them about your plan. Like that that was a good tactical idea yeah. that we could have pulled off to help us here. And I think at first he sees it, the magistrate sees it, that if they pull that off, that's a way to save himself and save his honor. Mm-hmm. And then when they don't, that pushes him forward with what he then has to do to reclaim his honor. The last thing I want to say before we get to that is to your point with Jakob and his, his communications with the magistrate, how he, even though he has some understanding of Japanese, he understands to go through the interpreter when he wants to portray the proper level of respect or the proper yes. level of, or, or, he wants to make sure his meaning is perfect where he doesn't want to just yeah. do like, i kind of learned this like at one point he says like through the interpreter's uh comments he learns the word for crisis yes he doesn't want to leave this up to chance so again just being smart enough and honorable enough to be like look i want to make sure i can i know where my in my language to say i want to make sure the honor the respect everything i'm trying to i don't want to sound like an idiot here like because he knows where his abilities stop where they where they laugh at him and he doesn't want that to happen right now. He needs this moment to be correct to to get his proper levels across. Yeah, yeah. He knows like where his abilities lack or stop, and he, like you said, shows the proper respect to like go through the the channels correctly. And yeah, he's he like I think has by this point in in the story has learned a lot from his mistakes. He's less naive at this point. I guess I would put it that way. Fair. Yeah, he, he's learned a bit of the game of Dejima for sure. <laughs> yeah. And then as he's staring down this uh, volleys, the, the multiple volleys of cannonballs, uh, I thought it was interesting that Marinus stands with him. Mm-hmm. And the, their, their chance of escape is taken away when the ladder is destroyed. But still, they, they stand there and they, they recite psalms together as they're waiting for the end to come. And then it doesn't. I just thought that was a good moment again, kind of that full circle of their relationship between him and Marinus to show that this man now trusts him to the point where he's willing to die with him. Uh, that's, that's a big deal. So moving yes, on, agreed. moving on, we have uh, Shiroyama, the magistrate. He is dishonored and we see his preparations to take his life. Did you find it fitting the way Enemoto found his end through this? Um, yes. Uh, only because I feel like trying to do it in some other way, like where you only assassinate Enemoto wouldn't work. I think like you are all in. Yeah. It was a bummer about Tominae, like his Chamberlain. And he even says something about that. He was worried at first that like Enemoto isn't drinking it. And he's like, oh, <laughs> Tomine already drank it. Like, does that mean that he's going to be the only one that dies or whatever? Well, him too. He said he was doing him, it with yeah. his eyes closed. And he's like, he felt like I didn't hear anybody else drinking except me and Tomine. So like, we are fucked. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and I at first I was really worried that that's exactly what was going to happen because Enemoto was just so vigilant about 
that fear of being poisoned that I assumed it also wouldn't work. He just seems so untouchable. So I very much appreciate it when it did work. And that was very satisfying. Now, this was another moment where you could see the research come into play where he talks about the kimono he's putting on and how his concubine had chosen it properly, where it has the color of life, the color of death. He has that moment with his son where he escapes from the maid and they they have a little conversation where he tells him the history about the Shiriyamas uh, and the, the engraved unicorn horn. Yeah. And now his son will hold on to it as a plaything for a while until he, and he even says like, I know you will not remember this. You are like less than two years old, but your mother will. And your mother will right. tell you the importance of this, this thing that you hold. And so our name will continue because obviously that's important. But then he's like constantly saying like he is prepared to do murder, right? Yeah, he has to like commit the murder. And I'm thinking like, okay, is he going to try to like duel Enomoto? Because that's not going to I was worried about that too. Yeah. So it was like, what, what are we thinking here? And then going back where this part of the book, this section part, whatever you want to call it, is called the master of go, where mm-hmm. this is whole, this is all set upon. And I don't know the rules of the game go, but they explain like, oh, his armies are here. His armies are here. He puts a spy there or whatever. And he talks about this longstanding game that he's had with Enomoto. And he even uses that as a way to draw him here. Like, yes, you are my second for Seppuko, but also my last wish is to finish this game because we are always so far apart. We never have a chance right. to do more than a couple moves when we're together. Right. And he loses the game of Go by like half a point, however it's scored. But because of that, I think Enomoto is blinded to the bigger game afoot, obviously, with, with that. And the fact that he was smart enough, yes, use your gourd, I'm going to poison the cups. Well, I think that that, the whole reason that it worked was that he and Tomine, because I'm sure he was in on it, were, like, prepared to also lose their lives. I mean, like, for what it's worth, I think the magistrate was in a position culturally, socially, whatever, that he really was ready to die. (laughs) Yes. I I don't Um, think he had a choice, but Tomine definitely did. Yeah, I just have mad respect for Tomine. Like, he and was great. <laughs> he did know because he gives Tomine credit for finding the poison. Oh, that's right. Because he that's says right. he's like a man of many gifts and this yes. is one of them. And they call it the yeah. four four minute snake or whatever. Yeah, yeah. And he's like, don't worry, we tested it on a dog. The dog lasted dog... two minutes. Yes. Oh, yeah, because Tomine said two minutes. Yeah. So, like, without knowing that, without knowing that they had 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 so much preparation going into it i was concerned that it wasn't going to work I was you know what concerned. i mean yeah, I, didn't I was like even... maybe he's immune to poison like... <laughs> iocane powder whatever it was very satisfying that the magistrate was able to say all of the things and to like really share with Enimoto how royally he fucked up and like who he messed with like you basically his downfall was taking a rito because like you had said before, like all of the people of import in this downfall have been somebody that was like, she was important to them. He even says that, like, do you think I wouldn't notice if you took the one person who like helped my concubine and my son? Like that was stupid of you. And yeah. they're just like, <clears throat> yeah, it was, it was nice. He got all those moments. And then again, with the description of how He's like, oh, I know it's working because my extremities are getting cold. And then it's like, I've now lost control of my elbow. And he's like, I go to make this move or one of them goes to make a move and their their arm is no longer responding. And it's like. And then the like accolade falls over and is like dead on the ground. Yeah, he was Spider-Man in uh, the Avengers. (laughs) Mr. Stark, I don't feel so good. (laughs) I'm so cold. I mean, I like 
didn't really feel sorry for the acolyte either. Yeah. I'm sorry, but like y'all, y'all fucking suck. Yeah. But I, I did, I did like that this was a fitting outcome. And again, where he outsmarted him and outplayed him, where he sacrifices the game of Go in order to win the bigger game. I, it was just very impressive. Also, also because like the game of Go, I actually think it's when I mean, the book, audiobook pronounced it Go. I appreciated the like correlation kind of between like the long game of go go whatever and the long game that Enemoto had been playing like he had he had set up his board his oh yeah literal and figure figurative board and i just very much appreciated like you said that he that the magistrate sort of i don't know if he let him lo- like let him win or not but regardless it's like he always expects to win so even in the game and the real game it just was very satisfying that he didn't and, and on your point about Animoto, like the fact that Jakob's like servant Hans Burrow was a spy for Animoto. like we, he learns that he learns before mm-hmm. this uh happens he learns that he's the one that destroyed his room looking for stuff mm-hmm. he's the one that ripped out the page in his book where he had the drawings of Burrito uh, and that's how Animoto know knew how he felt about her and like yeah, he had people everywhere, going back to Ogawa's sensei, like, he had people everywhere, but he didn't have Tomine, and he didn't have the magistrate, and that's where he fell short, so that was awesome. <laughs> it was. I was actually a little concerned, like, when Jakob decides to tell, like, to show the magistrate his, the, the scroll. scroll, I was like, what if he's another sensei-type dude yeah. who is already in the M you know, the employee of uh, of the abbot. I mean, like he kind of he kind of was under his thumb in in one respect, just in terms of like the money lenders and like all of that type of thing. But I appreciated that again, like you said, the light calls to like all these people with like very good moral compasses ended up being able to find each other. <laughs> and I think two points for the magistrate. One, he felt he owed a debt for to Orito because of his son. Yes. And two, he had nothing to lose because he, because already of this honor he had done, he had to take, like, there was nothing, like, if if he didn't have that dishonor and Enemoto yes. was going to lend him money to preserve him, whatever, maybe it's a different story, or at least he has right. a battle of conscience, but because he doesn't have that choice, I think that makes it easier so, for like, him. Totally. No, absolutely. Yeah. So I want to get to the end. We have a bit of a segment there 11 years later where we have the burial of Dr. Marinus and then we wrap up with a where are they now type of segment. I wanted to know what you thought of our wrap up for Arito and Jakob. So that whole where are they now scenario was like super duper fast forward, which like from a pacing standpoint was just pretty different from the rest of the book. We spent 15 pages on uh, sauerkraut, but like four pages on the second half of Jakob's life. Right? Which, like, I get it. It's the end. It sort of felt more like an epilogue than the whatever part, fifth part of the book. But I did appreciate the succinctness of the wrap-up. I felt like there was closure. I was bummed that Marinus died, but it totally makes sense. He was kind of like an older dude. And I appreciated that they, the way he died was very Marinus-esque. Yeah. In terms of like, I'm going to die on Friday because I've got the aneurysm. I cannot yeah. remember things. Right. So like that was very in character. And 
I appreciated the moment of like, it just sort of showed briefly how much Jakob had grown in terms of being the respected leader that he is of Dejima. The Japanese allow him into this space and he's so respectful and thanks them for doing that and all this stuff. And like, it just shows you, I wouldn't say how far he's come, but I guess that's how far other people have come in accepting him. Exactly. How far the Japanese have come with yeah. their respect of him. Um, sure. Which I think is really cool. And I liked the moment that he has with Orito. I think that him confessing about having seen her at the land gate and being like, I could have helped you, but I didn't because shit was going down and I'm so sorry for that. And she's basically like, if you didn't do that, yeah, maybe my life would have been better. But like all of this other stuff, we were the tools to make this happen. Like if that hadn't happened, none of the chips would have fallen where they fell, which I think is just so, it was very like poetic about the whole wrap up. (laughs) Well, the fact that she says like, you could have saved me pain, but because of my pain that I had to suffer, we saved so many more. Yeah. I thought was a great way of putting it where she didn't seem angry at him or anything at all, but it does still offer him forgiveness. Yes. Like, yes. It was for a purpose. could have helped me, but because you didn't, you still helped so many more because you passed on that scroll. Like you still did something that ended up doing a greater good than than what we thought. And I think that that was just very like, again, very poetic. I mean, I think that he writes very beautifully and very um very visually like i i had a really easy time like picturing that moment between the two of them and the fact that they still do it in the confines of like what is acceptable where it's like yes. oh we'll just walk down these stairs like we're yes. not standing here weirdly it's like okay we are just kind of traveling together for this time getting our- right right and like yeah he probably wanted more but like they're in very different places in their lives. And like he had his son by then. So like he'd had a whole relationship, whatever. Well, I think that was from the one night. That was, I don't know. If I, was that that, that whore from the. It was, um, it was, okay. but he does mention that she had passed. Um, yeah. After I that. assumed that they had like raised the kid for a little while together. But maybe, that, maybe not. They might have, um, but it sounded like she died when he was like two. So she had been gone okay. quite a while. Okay. Either way. Um, yeah, their wrap up was really nice. Then the like super duper fast forward of like once he leaves yeah. Tajima was, I mean, I guess it was nice to have as like a, and then he died sort of peacefully in his sleep with all of his family, which like, I don't know how else you would have shared that without having a super duper fast forward, but it felt a little weird compared to the rest of the pacing. As well. I think, I think the whole point of it was to give credence to his longing for Arito. The fact sure. that he dreamed her or uh, projected her there at the end to come to him, I think was just kind of that like feisty and bow on their whole relationship where, cause he was questioning it the whole time in the first part where he's like, I have Anna. Like Anna told yeah, me it was fine if I like too? sleep around, if I don't have love, but like also I have love and like I'm head over heels for the Cerrito. And then they have that moment 11 years later, like you were talking about at the funeral. And I'm glad they had that. Uh, my first point on this was I like they didn't end up together because it's not that perfect bow on bow on bow. But they did still have something there where he gets to air his sadness or whatever his his, uh, 
conscious and she gets to say, you're okay, we're okay. Uh, yeah. But they didn't end up together. But then I think, as you're saying, that the incredibly fast forward of where are they now, to me, that is just to show how important Rita was where she still comes to him at the end, where like, that's the last person he sees, even though he's surrounded by family, it's her that he's waiting for to come and kind of like give him the final kiss goodbye kind of situation. And then there was what, like the, and then like a paper door slides open or something yeah, like so. being accepted into like, I don't know, like the Japanese heaven. <laughs> like yeah, Well, they, cause they do talk about that several times about their beliefs and about how, like if people aren't their burials, graves aren't marked correctly, or if they'll come back and haunt you, like Enemoto even says that, like, you know how many people have cursed me at the end? Like you'll never do anything. Blah, blah, blah. So maybe that was his way of kind of getting back to Japan, which would yeah. make sense because and it makes sense from Mitchell's life too, where like he feels accepted there. Like I, I could see how he kind of wants Yaka to to kind of be accepted in the end. Yeah. And when that was closed off to him for so long. Yeah. Symbolism on symbolism. Indeed. Um, I did. I was a little sad that he talks about how he passed on the book of Psalms to his oldest Dutch son. And when yeah. he says that Yuan has passed, he it's says that Yuan right. died before him. So we don't I know. wondered how he'd even found out because like it sounds as though the correspondence between Dejima and elsewhere. I mean, it sounds like Yakov's tenure there had like increased the trade or whatever, like mended fences. But at the same time, it still probably takes a long while for things to get from a to b yeah so i assume it just happened early enough that like it got yeah. to that somebody still in dejima knew the connection right. and sent him in for sent him notice so the fact that it was in there like we're wrapping and up I, everything and it's like also his first son is dead Boom, by the way right, he died. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. so we spent a lot of time on a lot of different things i don't know if you had anything else you wanted to cover here we did touch on the one last additional spoiler i had at one point I don't think so, except to say what we were talking about before we started recording is the way, like, I really like the way that he depicts things. Like, I think he does a very good job painting the picture, but the the way he wrote dialogue made me want to rip the book in half. And it was a very difficult thing for me to read the physical copy without getting very distracted by this. And so the the listening to it made it a lot easier. But the with the way that he would have almost every dialogue have the beginning of a sentence and then it would be the end of quotation, like the quotation mark, and then it would be like Jakob said as he was walking away and then the end of the sentence of what he said. And like, it was just so jarring to read all the time, especially because it wasn't just like Jakob said. It was like a full-on description of like the act he was doing in the moment he said the thing, which like to me is valuable in some circumstances, but it felt too much and it was very distracting and it just must be me, but it was annoying. Yeah, it was funny because we did talk about this before and I told you how I kind of skip over that stuff. Like, especially when we're going through dialogue, I'll just, I'll read between the quotation marks and that's it. And sometimes I have to go back and be like, who said that? Uh, but for the most part, you don't really need that. So this didn't stand out to me as much. And then I flipped to a random page and found like four instances of what you were talking about very quickly. And Rampant. that does not usually happen. So no. I completely understand where this frustration was coming from. It definitely has value. And I think that it can really improve the whole thing. But it was just so much done so frequently that it would it just became 
frustrating. And so listen, I ha- I was like, I need to listen to this book. I cannot sit here and read these lines. <laughs> Great choice, Ross. Yeah. <laughs> I liked the book. I'm not saying I didn't like the book. It just was so much easier to overlook when I'm hearing it spoken to me because the person's doing a voice or whatever, you know, like it, yeah. it really adds to it when I'll that's being it. said. Uh, next time I'm in, I'm in the uh, the library that sells books, the bookstore, uh, I'll have to go to some of Mitchell's work and see if that's kind of just his thing. Like, it, Oh, maybe that's his style. Yeah. yeah I, wa- I watched Cloud Atlas. I didn't actually read it. So it'd be interesting yeah. to to flip through his stuff and see if that is the way he does it. So maybe, maybe forward to there. So on that note, uh, that is it for the book. We're going to move out of spoilers and moving out of spoilers, but not quite away from the book. I just lied five seconds ago. We have to finish it up with our grading system. If this is your first time, welcome. If this isn't, sorry for the next 30 seconds, but we do our grading based on the D&D D20 scale. So one is bad, 20 is good. And then we add or subtract an ability or modifier from the game of Dungeons and Dragons that we think best fits the book for whatever reason we made up and you have to deal with it because it's our podcast. So on that note, we alternate every episode and this time it is Taja's turn to go first. So Taja, what did you give this book? Okay, so I gave it a 15 straight roll. I think that initially when I first started reading it, that whole dialogue thing was like really a downer for me. And I was like, I don't know, man. Also five pages in that like, illustration i was like i'm not really sure if russell knew what he was getting us into i wasn't did the audiobook say like see illustration page nope. five <laughs> nope. no and i it was funny because i had listened to a huge chunk of it and then went back through the actual book and do hickeyed all the illustrations i found because like i didn't know that there was an illustration in that moment listening yeah. to it so yeah anyway i'm i don't have a lot of experience with historical fictions but overall I think it was really a good representation only because I feel like he as you said did a fuck ton of research and it felt very not that I know the difference between what would be historically accurate and not but it felt very fleshed out it felt very real and I think like I said before he does a very good job painting the picture setting the stage and I really felt like I was there in many of those moments, some of which were good, some of which were terrible. (laughs) But it, yeah, it was very um, transporting. And I think you mentioned, I did not read this, was his like afterward bit where he was talking about the language and the uh, making sure that he's using like time, a period appropriate wording and stuff. And it felt like he did a good job adhering to that but also not making it into something that like I couldn't understand because it was so different from the way we normally speak so I think he like met those two worlds very nicely so yeah 15 straight roll and then I'm giving it a plus two for constitution because I think that Jakob was just such a good representation of somebody I guess making the most of a situation that wasn't really what he expected it to be. I mean, the I've forgotten his name. The asshole uh guy who he comes there with. What is his name? Orson Bosch. Orson Bosch, thank you. That whole situation like really took a turn <laughs> that he wasn't expecting. And he was left in kind of a lurch and kind of a situation that was tough to claw his way out of, but he managed. He was in this place that didn't really want him there. Either Dejima and Nagasaki didn't really want him there. 
And I think he just like really had strong constitution to make to make something out of basically nothing and to still be such a solid moral compass protagonist in light of all of that. Yeah. So that's a 17. Nice. I agree in different ways with you for sure. So my (laughs) dice roll was a 16 on this. For a lot of the things you just said, this is, see, this to me was like a low four stars, whereas Mm -hmm. Guards Guards was like a high three stars to four stars. And like Goodreads figured out to make me feel like I'm not giving everything four stars. But I definitely, as you were saying, did not know what we were getting into with this book. I had I did no research on it just based on a video I saw on the internet and what I thought I could decipher from the title was way off. So (laughs) it was a bit shocking to get into it. It was a bit weird in the first few pages where it's like, holy shit, where the fuck are we? But especially once we got into spoilers and the second part started kicking on, the intrigue was up and I found that this book was harder and harder to put down. Uh, the story really seemed to to go well. And even though he did seem to take quite a few tangents about sauerkraut and other things at different <laughs> times, we've talked about this book for two hours. So obviously there's a lot in there that was worth <laughs> discussing. So I, I, I felt like it deserved a, a grade for that. I am giving it a plus one and I'm doing intelligence. Uh, so I like that we're both going with kind of the original ability or characteristics instead of abilities here, because I thought Jakob just showed so much intelligence when it came to how he dealt with the Japanese and kind of knowing that, especially with his initial investigation, he was not going to have any friends on Dejima. So yeah. how he carried himself in Japan, the few times they got to actually go into Nagasaki would be important. How he handled himself with the interpreters would be important if he wanted to be taken seriously or if he wanted any respite for the next five years that he was going to be here. Because it's like a jail sentence. He knew what he was going to sign up for. And then he immediately became the Inquisitor. And then things take a turn and his situation is much worse than he could even imagine. So I think he was very smart. I appreciated how he carried himself, especially compared to some of his fellow Dutchmen, uh, when it came to how they interacted with the Japanese, especially. And again, just his love of words and his intelligence, I think, connected into Ogawa, connected into Arito, Marinus in the end. I think it all worked out in his benefit. So that is also a 17 for me. So matching 17s in different ways, but we get to the same score. A good book. I think if you like historical fiction, if you have any interest in Japan... Yeah, uh, especially totally. this would be right up your alley there's some mysticism and magic or whatever you want to yeah. consider it in it but that's where the fiction of historical fiction comes in so don't be weird yeah. about it definitely i'm not mad that this was a stumble on and this is kind of the situation where we're now 63 episodes into the show and when we started we're like we do fantasy what else oh we do sci-fi and like as we keep trying to come up with things together about what we're going to read this was a nice blunder upon that ended up working out which <laughs> six pages in i wasn't sure it was going to so <laughs> <laughs> uh, trust the authors and sometimes it works out so one last time the book was the thousand autumns of Jakob de Zote by david mitchell a very good book there so check it out if you like historical fiction if you like japan if you like dutch if you like dessert mm-hmm. so now we move on to our segments and we start with our current selection taja what have you been listening to or you've been crocheting many things okay so i finished wrath of empire maybe i did that last time i finished blood of empire i 
read this list. Oh, I listened to the Britney Spears autobiography. That was fascinating and terrible. And her family should rot in hell. What else? Oh, I listened to this one called All Systems Red by Martha Wells. And it's like the first in this murder bot series. Um, so it's very like sci-fi. It was fun. It was one of those quick ones. It took me only like three hours to read or to listen to. I found uh, some other ones that are really short and I'm looking forward to those. But yeah, I feel like I'm just trying to like load up with those seven books. I feel like there's probably more that I finished, but Blood of Empire was really good. I don't know. I feel like I'm looking forward to more in that universe because there was one I think I told you about that were like little stories yeah. That I think have more to do with Ben. There's something about the Mad Lancers. So I'm excited about that, which would be really fun. Powder Mage novella collection. That's not the one I was thinking of. But anyway, I liked the culmination of it. I was pleased with some of the things and it's a bummer it's over. Yeah. That's I how I feel like-, like the other ones too. Yeah. If I'm remembering correctly, I feel like it was a little bows on bows on bows. There weren't like a ton of heavy consequences but there were some and I I do remember like the biggest thing just being like I want more yeah I did have like so I was listening to it um I was in the kitchen towards the end and there's like this one bit when uh and everybody's like in the godstone and Ectracia's just been stabbed by Mikhail and I was like, oh, no. And then she comes back. and I was like fist bumping. I was like doing all this stuff. So like that was a bows on bow scenario. But yeah, I think it was it's just like a universe that I think is really cool. And yeah, he does a really good job with like the many different storylines and keeping yeah. you like in it all. Yeah, the fact like a lot of them keep two and keep you going, but the fact that you can yeah. keep three and keep you interested in all three, like I, I just remember never being like, oh, like the the only disappointment of going to the next one was like I wanted to stay in this one, and then by the time, but then I feel out, like that, like, then I wanted time. to stay in this one, like it, yeah, yeah, you you still were hooked on every one. It's just like you just wanted to get, you just wanted the, the story. It was. Yes. Yeah. I wish more people knew Brian McClellan because I can't find him locally. So I no, that's like- what you were saying. He's tough to find. Yeah. My dad had read or listened to the Powder Mage trilogy, and then I just told him about these ones, and I was like, "You must listen to these. Must. <laughs> you must." And uh, yeah, I think that's everything that I'm like. I think that's everything I've currently read. Nice. Well, next episode we'll have seven books to hear about, so it'll be fine. So- yeah. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> For me, I only read one book this last uh, break, which I had touched on because I had started reading it last episode, which is The Poet by Michael Connolly, as I kind of touched on at the beginning of the episode. It was written in 96, and I really liked it. Like, it did have a bit of that Myron or Harlan where the technology is very 96. (laughs) A little outdated. Let me talk to you about how we dial into the internet. Let me talk to you (laughs) about how we have an email basket where you can deliver my correspondence. But the twists and turns were there. And Stephen King does kind of fuck it with the forward in the beginning where he's like, oh, you'll never, you know, the last two chapters keep you guessing. So the whole time I was guessing. Right. And I was like, oh, no, no, this, that, the other thing. I still got it wrong. So, okay. I was going to ask you if you guessed right. So good on Michael Connolly for that. No, I, I really <laughs> enjoyed it. And it was uh, interesting. It was about a serial killer who was, he was 
killing cops by framing them as police suicides. And the only hint was that their like uh, suicide note was one line of Edgar Allan Poe's poetry. Interesting. And that's how they tied it together. So um, it was a very interesting story and it was very big book, but it was definitely worth it. It was one that I found from free at my dump. So you never know you can find good stories. Love a good free book. Right. So hopefully I'll have two books to report on next time because that's what I need to get to finish my Goodreads selection. You can do it. You can do it. We have nine days as we're recording this. So on that note, we move on to random recommendation. This episode, it is my turn to recommend. And this is an older book that I read that I don't have in my possession anymore, but it is Imaginary Friend by Stephen Spotsky. And I'm sure I said that wrong. If that name maybe sounds familiar, he is the same author that wrote Perks of Being a Wallflower. What is crazy is Perks of Being a Wallflower came out in 1999 and Imaginary Friend came out in 2019 and it was his second novel. It is very different from Perks. It is a horror novel with shades of Stephen King. It's about a boy who disappears uh, mysteriously. His, him and his mom are on the run from his abusive father. And then he disappears. The whole town is like searching for him. Six days later, he emerges from the woods, unharmed, but very changed. As now he has this voice in his head of an imaginary friend telling him that there's things he must accomplish. Otherwise, the town and his mother specifically will suffer the consequences. So it was trippy as fuck. It was very Stephen King-ish where like you have to be in it. So I gave it to Amanda to read after me and it's it's Chonky Boy. And she like gave up three quarters in because she was like, I just can't because again, it's Stephen King-ish where sometimes the tangents are too long, but it does pay off in the end. So if that's kind of your Jimmy Jam, if you're willing to hang in there for the long run, it's a solid book with the ending that isn't a feisty and bow, let's put it that way. So Again, it was Imaginary Friend by Stephen Spotsky. I'm sure I'm not saying that right, but uh, check that out in bookstores or uh, libraries that sell books wherever you can. So Librerias are bookstores in Spanish. <laughs> <laughs> nice. See, so that's it. I was just getting on our Duolingo kick. Not a big deal. Mm-hmm. Uh, so our last piece of business actually we have a piece of surprise business before this business and that is maybe a surprise is coming your way maybe it's not we'll see what happens so avid listeners keep your ears out and your subscription subscribed and maybe you'll get a christmas parting gift or a holiday season parting gift uh from us for this season and if you don't not our fault so we finished with our regular finishing which is what's on the next podcast and we have a surprise book This is from Taja. It is very nicely wrapped with turtle uh, wrapping paper that I'm now going to ruin. So on our next episode, we will read. It's a total mystery because I forgot what I sent him. Oh, okay. We Contain Multitudes by Sarah Henstra. Totally forgot about this. That's awesome. So the two quick things, the two quick blurbs I can pull off the cover. Uh, Two boys, countless letters, one love story. You undid me. That's all I'm trying to report in this letter. So we will see what that is about as Taja has picked this for us. And it It is- It was a Vermont Reads, Vermont Humanities 2021 book. My cover has that on it. I was at a bookstore and they had two copies and I was like, okay, perfect. (laughs) Definitely sounds interesting. So we will get into that. We will be back with you guys to cover that after the new year. So uh, have a safe and happy holiday season. 
And for now, uh, thanks for sticking in there. I know we went long. I can tell that pre-editing that this will be a bit of our chalk here, boys, of late. But this has been the 63rd, the Brad Marchand, if you will, of the ABC pod, the Adult Book Club with Taja and Russell. Keep 